Hello, everyone. This is Richard Pullman. You're listening to Game Design with Richard Pullman. On this roundtable discussion, we're going to meet two new people that have not been on the podcast before, although they are part of a Game Design Discord. They're working on tabletop RPGs. Their names are Steve and Dunce. And I decided that I was going to get to know both of them and have Thade and Molly join me and make it a group discussion, have questions go in every direction and mix it up a little bit. So this is a roundtable discussion, but it's mostly focused on getting to know those two guys, Dunce and Steve. One of them is working on a Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition hack called the Dunce Hack. And the other one is working on a mech-based RPG without really having a setting and as you'll see in the in the podcast that makes for quite an interesting discussion with Thade and Molly there and myself because none of us are working on the same kind of game but we all, we all take interest in each other and the conversation goes kind of all over the place which is was the point we were trying to sort of bring up a lot of topics and then get into them I think this is maybe the best roundtable discussion uh, we've ever had because these guys are super polite. We get into a lot of topics and we kind of stick to it. There's a reason why I went four hours, and it's because we were engaged and interested the whole time. And I hope you will be too. I mean, there's no shame in pausing and coming back to it. Um, I think this is what it is all about. And if you like it, I hope you go to patreon.com slash Pullman and chip in a little bit for when these episodes get uploaded. Uh, it helps me out and shows support and I love to see that people are enjoying it. Share it, whatever you want to do with it. Thank you and enjoy this super long and interesting roundtable discussion. Hello, everyone. This is Richard Pullman. I'm here with Thade and Molly, who you'll remember from the past. Say hello, guys. Hello. Howdy. And uh, there's two new guests as well, and I've decided to have both of them on in this roundtable to introduce themselves and their games, obviously, and, you know, get into what they're about and see what it's like to, you know, uh, from their point of view, what they're working on their history, you know, kind of like I normally get to know people, but this time in sort of a group environment. So, uh, Steve, uh, tell us a little bit, just your, your game's name and the basic idea of it. And then Dunce, uh, let's hear you in your game afterwards. Hi, I'm Steve. Uh, my game I'm working on is Grips Mecha. Grips is an acronym for the five main stats of the system. The idea is it's a cinematic game focused on what actually makes the characters who they are rather than necessarily their capabilities. Because, like, to me, that is what makes someone interesting to play or interesting to play against. And it's mecha because giant robots are awesome. All right, that sounds pretty good. Dunce, uh, what is your, what is your game about? Um, hi, I'm Dunce and I'm doing what's called the Dunce Hack, which is a overhaul of D&D &D 5e. 
Um, it's sort of made the rounds already. I know a couple of people have mentioned it on Reddit thus far, so it's out there. Um, basically, I just saw a lot of issues with um, D&D 5e that um, I felt could be corrected. Now, that's a great starting point for me. <laughs> Anybody who knows me knows that I have many problems with D&D and... Uh, home brewing and total conversions and all that kind of stuff is to me a great, a great starting point before you make your own thing or, you know, if you do it the right way, I guess you could, you could make a, you could just stay within that and, and still have endless variation and fun and creative possibilities. So, all right. Well, that sounds pretty good as a starting point. Um, Steve, you, you want to get into a little bit of, you know, where, you started with the project and, and, you know, how long you've been working on it, what, what the real, like, sort of driving philosophy behind it is? Uh, the general, like, the very, very beginnings of it was a long time ago, just on the basis that I'd sit down and go, I wonder what would happen if I make an RPG, like, with this sort of idea. And that was before I'd really played RPGs properly. But after that, you know, sit down, think about an idea. And then I find it's easiest to put something away for months or years and then go back to it. I've got about four projects where I just every now and then will put them down and then a year later pick them up as if I looked at them just yesterday. Oh, wow. Like Grips Mecha, it's – when I say a cinematic action game about people like pilots with giant robots, all about their characters and personalities, it probably would sound a bit weird if I said the idea originally began as a martial arts game. Uh, yeah, that, that doesn't quite line up. The general idea, like I, like I mentioned, the name Grips is an acronym. The idea is that the game doesn't really care about your skills. It cares about what you, like what, the way your character prefers to act and their talents for, in certain areas. Like the, the attributes I mentioned, the five main ones, mm-hmm. grips are grace, response, insight, power, and steadfast. And that's literally just my character prefers to act, you know, subtly and with precision. Uh, my character prefers to react to things happening. My character prefers to understand what's going on. My character prefers to act with power and, like, you know, a great deal of influence. Or my character prefers to sort of weather the storm, which sounds like actions, but they're not. Uh, that's just... I mean, you can have a powerful speaker, or you can have, like, graceful thought, which is, like, creativity and art. So those sets, this is the basic idea of my character is meant to be cunning, so they'll have a high grace. Yeah, it's about how you it's about how you apply those stats, I'm sure. Yeah, like, this game doesn't really care if you're, you know, cunning because you're really good at sneaking. It's like, well, no, you're cunning, therefore the sneaking comes with it. It's not about... I'm making a ninja, it's I'm making a cunning character. And what made you want to do it that way? Did you have an experience with D&D or something else that, or did it literally just start as, I want to simulate, like you said, martial arts, and that's how you mentally break down, like, real-life martial arts, and that's just sort of the basis of inspiration? Well, when I was trying to do the martial arts game, the stats were a bit more concrete, like, you know, this is strength and this is agility. But as I was working through, I was trying to work out how to differentiate the different martial arts. And I was thinking, well, what if I said, you know, your strength applies to this combat attribute in this martial art, or that combat attribute in this other martial art? And then as I was looking at it, I was playing this MMO at the time that has 
long gone, as vast majority of MMOs have, called Wildstar. And Wildstar, all the things that it did pretty bad, it had amazing names for stats. You had an actual stat for the characters in Wildstar, which was Moxie. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> not like, I just, I, I love the idea of stats being these esoteric things that just can, you can apply directly. I gotta, and I gotta then, inform like, you, you don't have something that crazy in yours. I mean, yours are pretty, pretty sane compared to that. I, they're pretty sane, but at the same time, when you think about the ways you can apply them, you can do some unusual things with it. Like, without going into too much detail, basically the way it works is you take your primary stat, which is your grips, then your secondary stat, which is a talent, which is action, word, or thought. Oh, mind, I'm calling it now, I think. And you go, okay, so I want to be uh, really direct and commanding. That's a uh, power word. Or I want to be, like, I want to dance well. Oh, Grace, wow. Action. Yeah, yeah. So just with eight okay. numbers, you get a whole bunch of combination. Could I ask a question? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, who exactly is it that decides what, say, um, some action constitutes as? And what exactly prevents players from just labeling every action they take as a grace-related action? In That's order to get the best bonuses. Uh, yeah, that is a good question in the sense, like, you know, who decides what actually it is. I'd say that if a player wants to try and argue, no, no, I'm dancing with power action or something like that because I'm dan- you know, I'm doing the Macarena or something, which is a very powerful dance. <laughs> if they want to do that, sure. But it's, I always like, part of my game is the GM could say, okay, you're doing that. But then they apply the appropriate outcome for it. So if you decide you want to dance with power action, then the outcome will be, Everyone will notice this incredibly powerful dancer. You're not going to be blending in. You're not going to be, you know, just subtly conversing with someone on the dance floor. Everyone's going to be like, who is that guy and what is he doing? So that's something I like about that idea because rather than having a sort of a, a straightforward um, internal attribute that you would, like a, a classic attribute, it speaks to intentionality and therefore, if you cheat, even if, okay, you're good at that, so you succeed at doing that, you become a one-note character who always produces kind of the same result, and that might be, that might be fine for what your character wants, but, you know, if you want to, uh, achieve something, if the situation calls for a certain type of outcome, and you're not set up for that, I can see how that becomes a reason to have a more diverse team or get more balanced stats. Oh, my question is like, well, all right, but what exactly stops a player from saying, well, no, I don't think so. I think my investments are high enough and I dance so powerfully that I can just shame everyone into looking away and ignoring it so they don't feel inferior. And they'll be too ashamed to ever speak of this event to anyone, so I'm essentially stealthy. In a way, that does come down to the GM just has to have some degree of control over the table in the same way that, you know, a player in Dungeons and Dragons can't say, I'm using my intimidate to stealth. I mean, there's, what's that old story about the half orc rogue whose idea of stealthing was just literally pointing at people and just going, you saw nothing. And then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great uh, anecdotes about players trying to stretch their their characters' abilities out to to new lengths, and to me, that's a classic, timeless uh, RPG design dilemma. And but for what it's worth, I don't think it's what you got have going on. I don't think that's you know that can't be any worse than the the classic D and D setup. And in to well, me, might, yeah, go ahead. If I'm interject, um. That's actually how New World of Darkness has um, set up its game because um, it's got various stats for um, mental, physical, social, but within that it's got um, power, finesse, and resilience. And you can mix and match um, sort of whichever one that you're reliant on for a particular skill check within that system. So, you know, you can have, say, with your social stuff... Um, presence being the power one, you can walk into a room, you know, swaggering, you know, big dick swaying for want of a better way of um, phrasing it, <laughs> and go, all eyes are on me for this particular check. Or you could go the manipulation route, which is more, pardon me, which is more, you know, subtly finessing things through, you know, certain rhetorical devices and so on, and it affects how you pass the check. So there's already games that do it well. Yeah, I mean, my thing about World of Darkness actually is that I never really got the presence attribute. Like everything else of the other, the other nine, eight of the nine, made sense to me. But presence didn't map to anything that I actually experience in real life, interacting with people socially. Like I wasn't uh, sure what it was supposed to look like or what that was supposed to map to. The easiest way of describing presence is swagger. It's the person who walks into the room and everyone immediately knows they're there. Trust I've me. Never seen that ever. Yeah, like I know all about that. Like that's me. So, you know, I walk, <laughs> I walk into a room, and you know, I just get what I want because it's Pullman. He's got uh, swagger. But I, I, I actually saw that with a little kid last night who, um, just walked into the room. It was like a big public gathering. Just sucked to everyone and just made himself at home. And it was just the effortlessness of it. If I might uh, yeah. ask Steve a bit, though, I wanted a little more clarification on, like, what response and insight were. Like, how would that... How the, those... gen, the general way I've got them sort of categorized is power is... I'll just quickly go through them. Power is the ability to act overtly and to sort of dramatically change the world. Grace is the ability to subtly change the world. Uh... Response, steadfast is the ability to withstand the world's change. Response is the ability to act quickly when change is happening. And insight is the ability to understand change. They're all focused on this idea of change. Because I don't like the idea of stats that are... Well, everything should be focused on action happening. Even though in all games all over the place, I'm all about defense and just trying to survive stuff, I want my game to be focused on the idea of this is a game where action needs to be happening. Okay. Yeah, no, I think I got that. So there is no power way to understand something. Uh, if you combine power with mind, what you get is engineering, because you're changing the world overtly. Right, but you can't actually comprehend something through power. It always has to be through insight. The same way that you couldn't quickly respond to something without response. Yeah, basically. Okay. Like it's, uh, a good way to think of it is that the stat, like the grip stat, is how your character prefers to interact with the world, whereas the action 
uh, mind and word. They're the actual sort of the lens of your. You cut out yeah, there a little bit. That's pretty good. I think it's... I see all that map. So please continue. Yeah, so I think that yeah, I'm glad I had Thade and Molly on there asking tough questions right off the bat. <laughs> and, uh, I tend to, uh, I tend to save that for way later. But, you know, that's, that's, that's exactly, I, you know, I listen to that. If I don't ask it now, I'll forget about it. <laughs> no, it's totally, that's totally legit because, uh, you know, he has an answer for it. And, and, you know, that's, that's one of the points that I've, first of all, I've noticed, like you said, World of Darkness was doing that, but I, I didn't know about that example, but I have seen more and more designers trying to incorporate, um, you know, combined attributes or hybrid tests more. And I don't know, I don't know if that's a, an old thing already or if that's actually something that's just changing now and I'm just sort of noticing it more now, but the idea of doing an action that uses this thing, but with this, Sort of secondary characteristic or attribute to to try to narrow down what exactly your character is doing and how they're doing it is kind of a a paradigm that I'm noticing more. And I don't know if it's that's sort of a new school idea or not, but I know in the old school idea of just having a very f- limited number of stats and then um, it's all up to the GM to just say. Oh, well, it sounds like the way you want to do that, that's, you know, that's a dexterity thing, even though, you know, you could just as easily argue as a player that it's, you know, power or whatever. Uh, that whole debate kind of becomes lessened and less prickly when you have these sort of clearly defined alternatives that this already covers all of that. That's why I like the the idea, like they had said, of, if you want to understand something in your system, insight would be the way to do it. And there's, there's different ways you can like insight and words or whatever would be, you know, a method and an intention built into one thing. And it makes cheating or bending things and stretching out your character's relevance a little bit harder it's actually got an unusual side effect and benefit where, like, if you say you decide, okay, I want to make a character who's strong in my system. To do that, you go, okay, I'll go for a high power and a high action. By virtue of doing that, your character is, good, you know, at least reasonable at all things to do with action and all things to do with power. So it forces you to make a character who's not just a one-note wonder. Like, you can't just make a boring strong man. By making someone who's got high power they are good at giving orders and they've very got, got a strong commanding presence or they might be good at building things. So by making someone who's good at action, you're reasonable at stuff that would be labeled as dexterity or you're reasonably tough. Hmm. So um, another question I have is um, because your attributes describes the way a player interacts with the world and that's really a lot of what characterization is about, what do you use to make sure that not everyone who plays a cow- say power character is playing the same character? If they like, if there are characters who overlap in things, like you know, two people who have the, both high power, they could differentiate themselves in a number of ways. Uh, other stats they're high in, or the secondary talents they're good in, or another area that I don't want to go into too much, just on the basis that I'm stealing a huge amount of time here. 
which is traits, and that's just a like a open-ended description of the character that's used every now and then for a bonus or a penalty. Okay, awesome. It's sort of like the what's what's the phrase in fate? Like, what's the term they use? Oh, I don't even know. Uh, I've heard about fate so many times, but I I never memorized what their their system is. I've labeled. got the book about ten feet away from me. I just that involves standing up. Uh, yeah, it's the, a bit like the way fate has the thing where I say, "Oh, I've got this attribute or whatever they use for it." So does that give me a bonus? Sure. Except in my game, you can only use a bonus once. And you can have it offered to you as a penalty, and if you turn it down, that trait decreases a little bit. If you accept the penalty, the trait increases a little bit. Yeah, I think that part is, that sounds to me like the easy part is to keep, you can add more traits and more things to, you know, differentiate people. That's, that's sort of customizing, um, especially personality, you know, what your character's backstory is, their goals, their, race, all that kind of stuff that it's like great flavor and it, it would prevent people from even having the same stats from playing the same way or thinking the same way about their character. And I, I will like to hear about that yet, but I do want to get back to Dunce and then, uh, sort of what the crux of the, uh, the Dunce hack actually is and what brought you to the point where you felt like you had to do the work. How much work have you done on it? How much work has it been, and what kind of results are you uh, getting from that? Oh, that's... um. I distinctly remember three things that um, made me start working on it. First one was the reading the response to um, the Ranger Revised that they did for um, D&D 5e. So for those who don't know... What happened with um, the 5th edition release of the Ranger class was that people were unhappy with how weak it sort of felt. Mm-hmm. And so they did a revised version. Um, there was a lot of pushback on that because people felt that in some ways it was an overcorrection and in other ways it wasn't fixing the problems that people actually complained about. And they sort of concluded with, look, we're not touching this ever again. And... It was between that, um, displeasure with how they were handling the sorcerer as a class as well, and the fact that old races weren't being revisited, even though they got better at race balance as the game went on, sort of made me realise that, oh, once it's in print, that's it. That's done. They're not revisiting anything once it's in, like, final print format. And okay. so that got me thinking that, in a big, long game line, you can't really afford to take that attack because there's always going to be something that comes up in the edge case later down the road that's going to affect things retroactively. So I figured I guess I'd throw my hat into the ring and um, see what I can make of it. So you're um, actually trying to... You're, you're not taking it in a whole different... You're not spinning it off into a whole different thing. You're You're literally trying to fix problems that you recognize, or did is that just how it started? A um, little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, sorry, while I was talking, I was actually also pulling up my ground rules, because I should have done that before we started. Um, so here are the three ground rules I have for the Dunsack project, and these are gospel to me. These are lines I really don't ever want to cross. Um, the first one is that I do not nerf. Um, there are 
places where I've made exceptions in sidebars and so on saying these are optional rules, but I try and avoid it wherever possible because I think that the problems with um, D&D 5e are less about things being overpowered, more about too much agency has been cut from players' options. Hmm. Um, I can get into that a little later. There's a big lot of um, background on that particular point. Second point is to remove any um, false incentives or, you know, bad trade-offs built into classes, um, essentially removing trap options. Oh, right, okay. 5e's not, not too bad on this. Um, there are a couple trap options, orcs being one of them, but... Um, no, the worst edition for it, I genuinely think, was uh, 3 and 3.5. But that's a whole different um, design philosophy back then. Yeah. The, th- the third ground rule is to front-load agency and back-end power. So this is one that I sort of came upon from playing games that aren't D&D. In fact, um, the majority of my tabletop gaming experience isn't D&D at all. Um, the game that got me into tabletop gaming in the first place was um, Werewolf the Apocalypse. Um, the one I've spent the most time DMing has been Eclipse Face, so make it that what you will. But something I've noticed about the games I genuinely enjoyed more were that from character creation, you had all your options available to you for what your character build was supposed to be. Um, character progression from then on wasn't just in new options, it was in empowering the options you already had. Um, whereas 5e um, seems to take more of an, I guess, NMOE approach. And I think that's a holdover from 4th edition now that I think about it. And it splits off um, a lot of character options throughout the entire 20-level um, cycle. Mm-hmm. And when I mean character options, I mean here's a thing your character can do during your turn. So when I say front-loading agency, what it means for the Duntac project is everything that your character can do as an action, unless it's like a weird edge case that's particularly powerful or it's just lots of numbers tacked on, um, it's available to you in the first 10 levels. Okay. And then you just have to scale the effect accordingly? Yep. The idea I had was that, um, and this would affect multi-classing, which is something that um, has been raised as a concern to me in the past. But I'm not terribly, um, I'm not terribly concerned about it because the trade-off is that for a multi-class character, you have lots of things you can do, but none of them are particularly strong. Whereas a mono-class character you have a thin array of things you can do, um, but they're all extremely effective as you do them. I'm assuming that you're saying that these, maybe you already clarified this, but uh, your options are just available to choose from early on. It's not that you actually have all of the abilities. It's just that they become an option for you to pick like when you hit level two, instead of having you know four things you can pick from, you have like fifteen now or something, and then you're. Well, I am sort of keeping it to a by the design process. Um, so 
it's not quite that extreme. It's not like I've gone, you know, flipped the table and gone, let's do a full classless system. This now plays more like Shadowrun. Um, to be once, if you want to do that, well, there's Shadowrun, you know? Right. But, um, yeah, the idea is that, for instance, one of the more contentious changes I made was the um, Paladin Capstone. For those who don't know, um, at 20th level, um, Paladins get this ability that turns them into a sort of avatar of their oath and their faith. I moved that down to third level and then scaled that with level from there on out. And the idea I had was that, well, third level is when they their oath actually manifests into supernatural power. So why not give them that avatar yeah. ability early I, I, on? I don't have a question. I just want to say I really like that. Yeah, I like that idea too. You, it gets the ball rolling on your your head cannon for your character and your investment into their identity a lot earlier, and lets players differentiate you know themselves. If, even if you pick the same class as somebody else, you could stand out separately from them much earlier. I'm, this is not a concept I've run into before, but now that I've heard about it, I'm just enamored with the idea of things that scale with level instead of something that's locked behind a level. Yeah, well, that's... Well, it's actually something that, um, of all things, a guy talking about a MOBA um, clued me onto. So this was um, due to a question that was regarding League of Legends specifically. And they were asking about, you know, oh, why were certain abilities for certain characters done the way they are? And the response was that opening up options is always going to be more effective for, um, like, player experience and character depth than simply adding numbers on the power. You can have the most powerful character in the game, but if he's only got one button you can click, then no one's ever going to play him. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Team Fortress 2 was a, I put hundreds of hours into that game and it was very, that's a fast paced multiplayer kind of MOBA-esque, you know, sort of experience. Team versus team. And those, there are characters there that are very limited, but early on in the development of that game, they started introducing alternate weapons and things that had sort of a nuanced difference between them with the gear and loadouts and stuff you could have. And, and then pretty early on, there was, you know, you could have three different people picking the same class and and it, it was true that just having a more powerful version or a simple character like the heavy or whatever um you know it wasn't necessarily the most popular class because utility and and having different options was just more compelling as a play experience and and everybody had a weakness usually usually if you have somebody who's really powerful they also have sort of a a characteristics, typical, obvious weakness as well. So I think uh, yeah. mi- mitigating weaknesses is also a reason to do that. And that's actually, the Team Fortress 2 example is actually a really good one for that too because I remember back in those days when um, they introduced the flare gun as an alternative to the shotgun for the pyro. That's right, yeah. That simple change, the ability to set someone on fire at a distance completely changed the dynamic of that class. Right, yeah, and then you would 
you would, you know, think about the, the whole layout of a level differently when you pick that class because suddenly being 30 feet away from somebody had a whole different meaning and a different context to you and your reflexes reacted differently. Instead of wanting to run away or ambush somebody, you could harass them at a, a great distance and, and, uh, it's interesting. I, I want to add in that because it's a, a 5e hack and, and you're promoting it that way and it's very, uh, you're not, you're not promoting it as being your own whole separate game. That the, the politics of changing things in 5e and D&D is its own set of concerns. And it sounds like, like you said, people are talking about this on Reddit and that kind of stuff. How have you found the response to this so far? And, you know, I'm not used to that feeling at all of like messing with somebody else's game and then like trying to fix it or, make a, a different version of it. So what is it like trying to design all these things in an environment where there's all this baggage from the, the, the series and the franchise and the different people's home brews that are competing for different sort of status and all that kind of stuff? Um, to my surprise, it's actually been very quiet on that front. Um, essentially, yeah, I've seen people say, oh, this part's overloaded and whatnot, but being completely upfront with your intent mitigates a whole slew of drama. Um, like the whole no nerfs ground rule that I have, I'm completely upfront. Everything is equally overpowered. That's the whole point of the exercise. And that alone seems to mitigate a lot of the drama. Hmm, that's a good point. I can see that. How long were you actually working on? Everything's overpowered. Nothing. Well, that's yeah, that's exactly it. Um, how long have I been working on it? Yeah, I think March, February, one of the two. Oh, so just you started this year and and you've made pretty decent progress already. Yeah, um, there's a very long list of things I have to do, but some of that is just. Sorry, some of that is things I have to do. Some of that is things that um, I just want to do because I like the idea. Well, what is the what is the future vision of this? Where does it end up? You know, I actually haven't thought about it in those terms. I'm not looking for an end goal, so to speak. I just need a hobby. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess if you're into if you're into D and D and you're, I assume you have a group or something that you're. You know, you're, you're consistently playing to some extent and trying these things out with, with actual players? Actually, um, at present, I'm running an Eclipse Phase campaign. So, not quite at the moment. Um, but, you know, I've got a group that I can, um, bounce ideas off at the very least. Um, and I am in a DMV 5e game at the moment where the DM has taken on some of my ideas, but, um, yeah, I'm actually not playtesting it as much as I would like. Are you trying to get other people? Said, yeah. Oh, other people actually contacted me saying that they did autonomously before they even spoke to me. Hmm. Well, that's a good sign. I mean, that's a great sign, actually. Yeah, that's, um, like I said, came as a surprise. Yeah, I'm... But, you know, I'm impressed that even, cause you're just calling it Dunce Hack, right? Yeah. 
so you, I mean, you're not even marketing this thing as some slick, you know, that, like that name is not going to burst onto the scene as a, you know, especially like Dunce. That's, that's your, that's your name you're using, but you know, obviously I just, I, I'm impressed that you're getting traction on it with just sort of the, like you said, very upfront, very basic approach. You're not trying to cloak it or dress it up in some other way. And it, I think that speaks, that's probably a, a good strategy. It just speaks to people's existing something desire to, to see something change with the, the structure. Yeah. Something I learned with, um, just general internet interaction. If you're doing a project like this is no one cares about the glitz. No one cares about the, I guess, superfluous details. Like for instance, um, if you start running your mouth, say, about political subject or about your opinion on X or Y, no one cares. They care about the work that you're producing. That's why they came to you in the first place. As long as you put your head down and just do the work that people expect, then you actually get a lot of leniency on that kind of thing. Like, you know, no one's going to judge you too harshly for, you know, a silly name like mine if they like what I'm doing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that speaks to, you know, uh, you know, I do the, I do this podcast and, you know, I don't keep my head down <laughs> and work on, on my actual game that I keep talking about. Uh, I mean, I do work on it, but I don't, I'm not showing a lot for it. And, and, uh, accordingly, I'm not getting much traction on it. So, you know, despite the fact that people are enjoying the podcast, um, you know, it's, once I actually put out some actual material and I really show my work, um, that's when I'm expecting to, to reap any sort of benefit from all my ideas I've had. You don't get credit for just talking about it. That so people are coming to you for the podcast. Right. So, uh, a quick question for both of you. Um, to what extent do you bother to build a setting around your mechanics? I try and keep things setting agnostic. I'm possibly going to be a bit controversial here and say I'm not just making it setting agnostic, I'm actively avoiding a specific setting. Oh, I wasn't expecting like, that. But in my experience, DMs and they, well, there's a lot of people out there who really enjoy creating their own world. Like, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of people who enjoy, it was like Faerun is the basic world for D&D 5e. Uh, you know, Shadowrun has its solid setting. And there are a lot of RPG designers out there who get a lot of joy out of creating this incredibly dynamic and intriguing setting. And every time I look at that, my first thought is just, I would enjoy playing in a, like a setting I make more. I'm, I just assume other people feel the same. Well, that's this is also the problem of, you know, if I create a setting and I put it out there and people play it and they enjoy it and they then create their own things off it, does that mean if I create any sort of expansion that contradicts them that their setting is wrong or I don't like the idea of having a canon setting for an RPG because the moment you give it to people, it's their setting. It's not your. That's, and that's, that's the perennial problem with um, having metaplots as a concept. Yeah, um, I was going to ask how you manage to keep, um, your rules setting agnostic dance, um, when 
Like, what considerations do you have to make when you decide, oh, should I do this thing or that thing, in the context of trying to avoid, like, pigeonholing your thing into a setting? Like, for example, just with the paladin stuff, right? If all level three paladins can change into an avatar, then it's somewhat unambiguous that religion well, magical force, for example. Um, Five E already made great pains to move toward that because even though Faerun is the base setting of um, Forgotten Realms, um, they have a thing out for Eberron, I believe. What? Yeah, Eberron. Um, they've been talking about. Um, I think it might have been in Planescape and some supplementary material. The Magic Gathering guys keep releasing all those settings um, online as well. So they already make great pains to be setting agnostic. The thing with the Paladin Oaths, for instance, is the power is drawn directly from the Oath itself. You can have a Paladin in the absence of gods because it's the personal belief in their own duty that provides that power. It's a placebo um, even, effect. Yeah. Um, they also have an outline for how to run clerics in a setting that doesn't have gods, you know, because that belief in metaphysical ideals, essentially. So with 5e, it's surprisingly easy. Um, but as a general design concept, I've got more than one setting. So... One thing I say I will really like from Matt Colville's stuff is his use of the phrase fantasy land. Like... There are so many RPGs that are just based in sort of generic fantasy land, and it sounds a bit negative, but I don't think it really is. It's just, this is fantasy land. It's got the fantasy land assumption. You cut out there. Oh, sorry. Uh, like, I was just saying that fantasy land is the term Matt Colville uses for it. The idea that this is a setting that starts with these baseline assumptions and from there, you can go into the more setting-specific details. You know, assumptions like there's divine magic, there's arcane magic, paladins exist, that sort of thing. Well, as a counterpoint to, to both of you guys, not to, not to say that you're doing it wrong, I certainly respect uh, that logic, and I think it's totally solid. Um, what do you make of something like the Warhammer, you know, universe for role-playing where they overload so much on lore. They have so much available and it's all vaguely open-ended to, you know, that you could have because it, it works across galaxies and solar systems. You can invent your own planet where within that planet, there is a completely essentially unique setting, but it's all framed within an extremely uh, dense backstory. And there, obviously there's a lot of people who, who derive um, a lot of inspiration out of that, whereas a setting agnostic system doesn't inspire you particularly um, with other stories. It doesn't have to be a meta plot that you interact with as players, but it's it's there as a as an influence on sort of getting everyone on the same page right off the bat, saying this is sort of the world and the tone that we're going for, that kind of stuff. It has its place. I mean, like I said before, it was Werewolf the Apocalypse that got me into tabletop role-playing games. Now, I don't know how much you guys know about that setting, but uh, to call it a heavy meta plot is to put it lightly. Um, my thought is that the mechanics need to back up the setting if you're going that route, though. 
Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, I, I, I can remember also, I mean, at the, on the same token, I can remember people, I actually was watching streams of people playing, uh, Warhammer 40k, you know, role playing game and, and there was, each had a different sort of conception of what it meant to be a guard in the, you know, in the, an infantry guard in, in their, Space Marines or whatever. And, and so even though there was all this backstory, it didn't actually help people really understand how to role play. And there was a lot of mixed opinions about it. And, and it became kind of disjointed. Um, so it's tough. I, I think there's definitely a trade off when you go with a heavy setting. Uh, for myself, I'm kind of. I wouldn't say I'm struggling with it because it's not a major concern of mine. It's like if I, I could easily go setting agnostic in mine. I'm not married to a particular setting idea, but I personally know people who are interested in playtesting my system that basically refuse to get invested in a character unless they are somewhat told, uh, you know, why they should care, what they need hooks to get them into it because they're, they're not interested in inventing a uh, a setting or like even characters. The more I put in that, like roll a dice and it'll tell you what your character's you know background is and what they used to do for a living and stuff. The more it goes in that direction, the more interested they become because I, I don't know if it's a social sort of pressure thing that you know it's it's sort of awkward for them to put themselves out there and create a. Uh, something from scratch that like people will make fun of it. But if they get told what it is, they can just sort of say, that's what I was told. That's what the character is, you know? Um, and personally, no, it's, um, it's something slightly out, uh, slightly different. Sorry. Um, there was a paper that went around like an academic paper, um, talking about game design that was talking about different ways people interact with games and what, aesthetics they actively seek and it seems to be based on personality but different people want different things out of their game for people who like you're describing who want a backstory to invest themselves into they just want to be told a good story like their interaction is similar to the interaction with a really awesome audiobook you know whereas people who want to actually throw themselves into a world that they helped create, they're more of the world builder type person. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I just make myself out to be a massive hypocrite here? <laughs> I would love that. Go nuts. So I was saying, you know, I'd make everything as setting as ag- agnostic as possible, but at the same time, uh, part of what I'm hoping to put out as a final product would have a sample setting in it. And this is very deliberately designed as a sample setting. Like it would be a separate PDF that just says, if you want to play Grips Mecha in the, what's the, what's the, what's the setting? I think the setting name is Iron Chevalier's World. Here's what you do. And here are the variable rules that apply. So it's sort of like a, if you interested in getting into it, but you're not sure you want to create your whole world from cloth, here's a sample you can use. Hmm. That, that sounds fair to me. That's a, I really consider doing that myself because I consider my system, the core features and functions of the system to be, uh, I mean, not to 
to just sound smug, I, but I just think that it's it's too good to just limit to one setting. Um, it's something I would like to personally see get applied to more than one setting, but I also have setting ideas that I think would would be particularly good at drawing out the benefits of the system. Like a, sit, it, a setting to me in a role playing game is a general pattern of situations that you can expect to encounter. And so the situations that my game handles well, for example, you know, my game uh, features heavily the, the theme of wanting to find a successor for your character so that when you die, they take over for you and you continue playing as your own successor um, so that death does not have the same meaning it would in a normal RPG, and you don't just re-roll a character, you actually train your next character. So the setting, yes, you could run that in any um, any setting, theoretically, but if I write the setting the right way, I can really highlight and emphasize the the choices and dilemmas and and everything regarding that in the system. So... It's sort of a situation generator in my mind is what the setting really contributes. And for that reason, a sample setting would be a kind of a good way of, I think, highlighting certain types of situations you want to recur more often and leave it open for people to, I I suppose, to uh, apply it differently or put their own twist on it and not be too precious about it. I, I think that would be a good balance. Also, I'll just say I really love the idea of a generational game, like a game that specifically has, this is the end point for this group. Here are the rules for starting up a new group in the same world, leaving like continuing on the legacy of the life. Yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, I literally, uh, you know, I guess I can announce here on the podcast that, uh, I officially bought the domain name of the URL of longviewrpg.com and, and, uh, the, the subheader of the website is generational role playing. It's, that's the, the sort of the, the byline of the title. Um, so yeah, for me, that's something that, you know, I have a whole, the idea of the setting is, is that this was an ancient tradition of passing on um, your adventurer's mantle and having a, a legacy that has certain obligations and sacred duties and stuff. And you're all part of this order and it's, there's a lot of rich tradition in it, but that was all lost at some point and now it's being rediscovered. And so there's people who are like you. There's other groups essentially competing for glory and for, um, to, to recruit the best recruits, the best squires, the best, you know, talent out there. You are also looking for that, but you have to try to outshine them if you want to, uh, you know, if you want to get the best material. And if you basically fall behind, um, you know, those people will disappear and you'll be left with just sort of the, the rejects of the, of the setting to recruit into your own and that kind of stuff. Like, not that it's that, clear cut, but that is one paradigm that I could see people exploring as they play. And, and so the setting just, like I said, it just creates situations 
somewhat reliably that everyone can accept and get into. And if it was purely agnostic, it would be hard to emphasize that. And the setting goes hand in glove with the the main themes and mechanics I'm trying to push. Well, there are ways of um, handling what you're describing, because with Savage Worlds, for instance, Savage Worlds is a generic system that's completely setting agnostic. That's the whole point. But people generally don't remember it as Savage Worlds. People remember it as Deadlands. So you already have examples of um, setting agnostic systems that have that you know, ubiquitous kind of here is the, you know, two of the force of what our mechanics can represent. Yeah, I actually read the Savage Worlds rule book. I never got to play it, but um, I don't remember anything about Deadlands. Uh, they sell as a separate book, so. Oh, I see. I think it started at Deadlands, didn't it? And then they just sort of genericized it, like in the same way that Fantasy Flight Games did with their Star Wars game. At least I think that's how it went. I might be talking about Yeah, I do remember hearing that, but I can't confirm that. I came in Savage Worlds quite late in the piece. Isn't that somewhat... Oh, no, I was thinking of uh, the the Fallout series, which which, uh, basically adapted the GURPS uh, system, but that's, that's the inverse of that. Yeah. Um, one that I was actually going to recommend to you, though, was um, there's a good video game example of a hereditary system that already exists. That's uh, Sunless Skies. Hmm, Sunless Skies. I've heard of uh, Massive Chalice was trying to do something like that, um, but I don't think it executed it particularly well. Sunless Skies. Okay, I'll look into that. Yeah, um, like I said, it's a video game example, so couldn't really adapt it one-for-one to a tabletop, but might be a good source of ideas. Well, I mean, I've, I've, ha- I've had this idea since basically when I played, initially I started playing World of Warcraft when that was new, and, you know, m- my story begins with playing that and getting really into the concept but hating the actual game system and then wishing and then hoping I could make an MMO video game that was, you know, had generational stuff and all these ideas in it. And it took years, you know, what was that? Like 2005 or something like that when that game came out. And, uh, yeah, you know, so from there I developed all these ideas for a theoretical video game that I knew I would never make. And then eventually I think when like 5e came out, I, I sort of snapped out of it and I'm like, you know what? There's no reason I couldn't make this as a, as a tabletop role-playing game and actually have way more freedom and way more um, I could do with it. So to see other games come by in that time, that, you know, over a decade of time that are touching on the subject, uh, I'm glad to see it. I hope, thankfully, nobody's done it the way that I want to do it, so I don't feel like it's a moot point to to do it. So, um, yeah, that's... That is inspiring. I really like um, this sort of thing where you're giving characters a reason to build relationships and care about, like, NPCs. Because um, in a lot of games that, like, I've been in, watched stuff, I notice that player parties tend to become a very insular kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, self-awareness and 
your reputation within the greater setting is almost impossible to neglect. And if, if I'm designing this correctly and if it turns out the way I think it will, um, you'll have to grapple with the reality of how your actions and your quests and things you do are interpreted by the by the people around you and if people slander you or misrepresent you or you have some sort of terrible reputation even if it's wrongfully a bad reputation you know you basically have to deal with that or else it will start to affect uh your ability to just carry on if you if you die without a squire your sort of legacy is cut short and you can't continue and that's sort of the game over of the of that character and stuff so um well that that all comes down to execution and your mechanical incentivization because um like if you're looking at the reputation stuff specifically um there's a few games that already have stuff like that that do it quite well uh stars without number comes to mind for various factions um clip space has a favor trading system um red markets has a um contact system for um interacting with individuals so Mm -hmm. there's already examples out there but how you were saying before actually about um how you were hoping that no one's captured it quite like you did well is that really something to be so precious about because no one really cares if it's the same idea so long as you execute it better that is true i mean i i get an extra pleasure out of thinking that i'm being original it's uh it was, I think, somewhat original when I first came up with it. Um, but, you know, by this point, it's, it's gone through so many iterations and, and, uh, most of them not even on paper, just in my head of how it would work. But I'm getting closer to actually making a first edition soon. But the, you are right. The execution is what makes something, um, actually be remembered or not. And, there could be some other game that theoretically does the same thing worse and none of us would even know about it because it never got on our radar. And so I wouldn't, I don't know if I'm precious about that, but I'm trying to, you know, I do take pride in the fact that it's, it's a slightly different take on, on the role playing and what you would, what a player should care about as they're, playing like not that i'm saying other games should imitate it i'm just saying in my system it is i want players to care about the idea of their legacy in a more mechanically important way it literally is your next character so you need to care about what they're like and they start as npcs and then they become pcs and that's an interesting dynamic that i want to explore and um whether that's been something done or not, that, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, something that um, might actually help you just um, think about it a little deeper is um, originality isn't coming up with something wholly unique. Originality is often just putting two ideas together that aren't always seen together or aren't even conceived together. So mm-hmm. simply having you know a particular facet to your hereditary system that's unique to yours, well, that's all you really need to stand out if that's mm, yeah. something you're concerned about. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, but uh, moving on from my own thing, I, I want to get back to Steve and your your Grips Mecca thing. And we, we didn't actually get into 
the mecha side of this at all. Uh, that we, we know yeah, a little bit about your robots. Yeah, I'm. I'm oh, giant stompy robots. Everyone loves a giant stompy robot. Uh, basically, I've like there are a lot of mecha games out there that take this incredibly simulationist approach, and that is great for them. Double thumbs up. Love it. You know, there are times in my youth where I just sit there reading some of those books, you know, with the big technical readout and that sort of stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I I have not played a proper game of Battletech in my life, but I can tell you all about the strengths and weaknesses <laughs> of all these different battle mech designs because I am that sort of wanker. And I just decided I'm going to go with a completely different design for it where the mechs are a combination of a couple of bits of equipment and a replacement of the talents. So, like, where I mentioned that you've got action, word, and thought, instead it's just a different type of talent and a different combination for how it interacts with your groups. So it may keep it as streamlined as possible. And from that, like, just as a bit of a tangent, a bit that I'm kind of proud of, and just toot my own horn here, is it showed that it kind of scales really well. Like, all you have to do to have the same character in control of themselves or a giant mech or a starship or an army is replace the secondary statistic. Can you explain that a little bit or give an example? Okay, so uh, say you've got a character who's really, like, they've got a good power because that's a fairly straightforward thing. They're powerful. They can you know, give commands. They can act physically with strength or they can you know, use logic and engineering. So that they've got really good power. Then you put them in a mech, and this mech has a very good... I think the stat I use for it at the moment is frame, and that's the idea of what the mech physically is capable of. And in the hands of this person, it is quite strong. It is, like, it's sort of going more for the narrativist idea where... The, the physical stats something aren't as important as what a character would do with it in the story. So you take a, like a mech that is, has a very strong frame. In this guy's hands, it's very powerful. Then you go a level up and you go, okay, we'll give this guy an army. And you go, okay, he's got a very good power. So you add that to, um, I can't remember what I've got written down as the secondary stats for an army now, but for example, it could be, um, logistics. Like, he's got an army, and one of the secondary stats is logistics. So power, power and logistics, he's very good at keeping this army well supplied. He will, you know, put all his effort into going, okay, we need this, this, and this, we'll supply these to there. So this army is very well looked after. Then you can go, like, one level up into nations. And you got, okay, this nation has a very good diplomacy secondary stat. Diplomacy with power, he's very good at using the influence of the nation to force other people to act in certain ways. Everyone knows, okay, yeah, they're throwing their weight around, but he's getting what he wants. So this, you're saying that these attributes, not only do they get creatively applied on the character and character action basis, but that you want to kind of use it as a, as a, a scaling template for almost any like organization and, structure of, you know, of a power structure and international relationships and all that kind of stuff as well? Pretty much. Like, I I know it's a very, academically, it's an awkward thing to mention, but the great man theory where 
the right people in the right place can have enormous impacts on history. I very much ascribe to that uh, to that idea narratively. I don't, I'm not a historical academic, so I don't have any idea how accurate it is. But in terms of story, it is a fantastic story to tell. The idea that the person in charge of a thing can have incredible impact on how it acts and how it can throw its weight around. And so in this story, if you replace the person in charge of, say, a particular nation, the entire character of that nation on the battle map, for a different, well, for a lack of a better phrase, changes dramatically. You replace someone who's got high power, like that previous guy we mentioned, oh no, he's been assassinated. His replacement has very high grace. All of a sudden, that high logistics grace means he's getting in, like infiltrators all over the place and no one really knows how he's doing it. They're well supplied, they're just showing up wherever they're needed. Or the diplomacy nation with a high grace guy in charge, all of a sudden they're getting all these favors and everyone's like, how are they managing this? We can't quite see what they're doing. They're just getting stuff out of people because they're using backroom deals, blackmail, all the sort of subtler techniques. Hmm. Do you, how much do you make that explicit? Like how somebody should interpret the application of these things? Because when you explain it, it makes a lot of sense to me and I'm, I can get into it, but I would never jump to these conclusions myself about how to apply them, especially in that kind of abstract level. Uh, Basically, I go into a lot more deals, detail of it in the nation and army stuff, but at the same time, okay, this is going to make me sound like a bit of a bastard, but I've got a rough plan in mind for the business side of it that's kind of cheeky. How familiar are you all with the fantasy flight game Star Wars? As in the Star Wars RPG, I mean. Not on the details of it. Okay, so basically what they do is... You know, they've got their three main book lines out, and those books are mostly just repeats of the same rules with different, like some slightly different stuff for different things. But once you go past that, what they've got are the career books. And career books are, they are very, very cheeky, but they're very, very effective. Because you think, oh, the bounty hunter career book, that'll only be useful for bounty hunters. No. It's got different species you can play. Anyone might be interested in those. It's got some different specializations for bounty hunters. Yeah, that's mostly just for bounty hunter classes. But then it's got different equipment. Then it's got different ways you can play campaigns. It's got different advice for things. So the the bounty hunter book is useful for anyone. Like, I think their technician book is the one that had how to craft things. And that's the thing that anyone might be interested in. That's So Hmm. when I was looking at that, I was thinking, I could kind of use that in... This system, like, mix it in with, uh, what's the name? Kevin Crawford, the guy who does Star Without Number. The smartest thing Stars Without Number ever did was release their base PDF for free. It means that, like, huge numbers of people know that system. Huge numbers of people know that guy who created it. They're like, yeah, this is a book we'll happily recommend. And the baseline PDF's free. You can get a better one for a small price. Then there are all the little add-ons you can get. Sure. If you combine those ideas, you get a baseline system, release the PDF for free. If people like it, fantastic. If they play it, wonderful. Then the idea I had was sample settings with different specialized rules. So even if you don't necessarily want to play the sample setting, you might go, oh, this is the Golden Guard setting. That has rules on how to play the trader. I'm interested in running a game in my own setting where the players are traders. Let's see what we can do with this. 
So it sounds like this is these are what I would historically have called like expansion packs, essentially themed expansion packs that um, do have a specific sort of running theme or a focus somewhere in there that is very explicit. But uh, it's basically a bunch of things that they would have liked to have included in the base thing, but they're either stretching it out for the sake of making more money or because of deadlines and whatever, they just didn't have time to include it all. So they're, they're just expanding the scope and giving you a reason to, to look forward to more updates and, and all that kind of stuff that, um, and you're saying you want to do that because you're, you're answering this in response to my question about how you would, how explicit you want to, you know, flesh these things out in your documentation. So you're saying that, you know, you might, you might release an expansion on a particular aspect of how to apply, um, these, this system of attributes to a certain type of organization that like a marketplace or something like that, maybe. And then it's a marketplace expansion and, and suddenly you get insight into how you could use the system elsewhere. Basically. Yeah. Like I really liked your way of saying it, where this is, it's a themed expansion with these are rules that would have been really cool to include, but it's kind of hard to justify it. Like I like the idea of putting out something that this is the minimum viable product with this, you can create a game and play it and then have the expansion rules in extra stuff. Cause like just being honest with myself, just on a whim, I created a 10 page rule set for how to run a social gathering in this system. And I don't think I could justify putting that in a core PDF. That's That was fun to make, and I reckon it would be fun to run, but I don't think I can justify it. You mean because it feels like a supplement? It feels like a, sort of a weird, eccentric add-on that... Because, in, in a sense, everything that's in the core rulebook, players should read and should know, whereas things that feel like extras, you almost want to exclude them from the core just because it's a it's a mental load on players who are just trying to learn the basic rules, right? Yeah, pretty much exactly that. I mean, you should not need to skip past the how to run a social gathering rules just to understand how combat works. You know, you, these are the basic rules. If you know this book, you're good to play. If you want to pick up the other books to get some different ideas of how to do stuff, fan. Hmm. So this is a big old bowl of ice cream. If you want, there are some sprinkles in the corner. Yeah, um, I, I can I can understand that. And then having, I mean, especially if you, uh, judging from how you explain these things, it sounds like you do have some pretty good ways of applying the logic, even at very abstract levels. And I always appreciate that because it means I don't have to learn a separate, a, a, an entirely separate system. It is essentially the same system. It is just recontextualized for something else. So I would be interested in doing that, especially if you get a good handle on how to use it in the base game. Um, you naturally would start to, you know, think in terms of those attributes with whatever you're doing in the world. And a player could come by and think up their own implementation for how you would apply it, you know, to a, a business or a, something like that, and then that's good for them. You know, that's any RPG you could say that you could 
creatively apply the rules, and that's how you get homebrews and and custom systems. But once the official version comes out, that's when uh, you know people tend to perk up and uh, and use it more creatively. And people who can't think of their own subsystems or applications get reinvested because now they suddenly realize that they can take their campaign in a new direction. And since you want to be somewhat setting agnostic, um, it's a good excuse to inspire new things without having a setting, a particular setting. You would inspire campaign ideas and situations purely off of the expanded material and expanded subsystems, I would think. Um, I would caution one thing, though, is that the problem I see is unless these expansions come out like fairly close to each other, so that if I was interested in something, I could go get it right away um, instead of having to wait for you to release it, then I would feel like a lot of people might shy away from the system because they say, oh, but I want to do this thing and you don't have it. Yeah, that's a fair concern. Ideally, like the first... So I mentioned I've got a sample setting. That's just the sample setting would be a very basic thing in the rulebook to say this is what you can do with it. And ideally, the, like a more expanded version of that sample setting would be out at the same time. So at the very least, I'll have one in place, uh, and hopefully I can sort of work on others fairly quickly. Or worst case scenario, not really release what I've got until I've got a couple more in the can, so to speak. Just because, I mean, this isn't a job of got other stuff I do for full-time work. Yeah, I'm doing this for most of the fun. Yeah, I, I'm curious, though. I mean, I feel like we started with wanting to know more about mechs, but it it very quickly became nothing at all about mechs. Um, right. Like, now, obviously, I'm as familiar as, as any normal person is with how how neurotically obsessive the, the mecha, you know, community sort of mentality is it's a fascinating rabbit hole you can go down forever and you don't need to obviously get that technical but are, it sounds like you're not even interested at all in simulating you know characteristics of machinery and robots is that fair to say this is where the setting agnostic thing i was talking about does kind of bite me in the ass because like if I don't want to say, this is what a mech is, it's 10 meters tall, it's 75 tons, it's called a mad cat, then, you know, it's it's kind of hard to be sending agnostic and then at the same time, like, define exactly what a mech is. So what I do is more sort of, I want to bring about narratively what it is, but I want to bring around the, the feeling and the symbolism of saying, this is a big robot that you are now in charge of, don't you feel like a big man slash woman? Okay. Um, You're not committed to anything like fusion engines or all the implications that would have for society. Oh, no. Like, in the equipment section, I talk about, uh, like, for example, one of the defensive actions that mechs can have is point defense, and that's just literally shooting down missiles as they come. And there's a little sidebar that says, talk with your GM about if missiles and point defense is a common thing in your... Because, you know, it could very well be a thing that, no, in this setting, mechs don't use missiles, or mechs don't have point defense, or mechs don't just run around with giant shields on their arms. But the, the options are... That's really fascinating to me, because it's it's literally the subtitle of your game. It's Grips Mecha, and 
and it feels like you're offloading the work of making Mecha onto players, which as somebody who doesn't know shit about Mecha but finds them interesting, it would absolutely rule me out because I don't know how to make Mecha interesting. I can follow the logic when somebody else makes it, but I'm not, I don't have engineering interests. You know, I need to be told what a Mecha is in order to even get invested in the concept. Uh, and I like different versions I've seen. I played front mission like crazy when I was growing up and I, I love the idea of, you know, customizing and all these things, but it's always just sort of a, a discovery process for me. I don't, I don't actually have my own like basis for doing that, but I'm wondering how somebody like me would even get started on this. Like if I was trying to run the game, um, you it sounds like you want to have a sample setting, and I assume that will be where you give at least examples of, you know, how you could apply all this logic to building your own mechs or the armies with different functionality and roles and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, the sample setting is like I'm going to lean a bit heavily on the sample setting. I think just till people sort of understand generally what I'm going for. The goal is to leave it semi agnostic, so a GM can sit down and go. I want to tell a story in this kind of setting. Uh, and as part of that, they would sort of sit down and go, so what are the mechs like in this? And there is a section in the GM's guide part of it going, you know, narrow this sort of thing down, work out how you want to portray this, do you want to go into this much detail, that sort of thing. The sample setting, I think I mentioned to you all before, basically feudal knights in space, because why not? All right, like even just saying space already completely changes the context that I was imagining. So that's like a, you know, to me that's an entry point for me. It makes it accessible to me that that uh, you know the more broad and, and open ended a, a setting is the the more I feel pressure to do something radical. Like I I, I very rarely just adapt. Actually, I never adapt. Just a you know, fiction from some popular pop culture thing. I always feel like I, I need to come up with something somewhat different. And even just guidelines on that kind of stuff without being a specific setting would would help somebody like me out. I'm curious what Dunce thinks about uh, that approach since he's also... And Dunce, actually, the, I want to get to that too. The idea that you're... I've never heard somebody say that before, that 5E or that... The Dungeons and Dragons is setting agnostic, which it is, but I'm so used to the default idea of that setting that to me it feels like it's very, uh, it's a very elaborate, you know, comprehensive attempt at making a setting. And the way you're phrasing it, you don't think of it that way. You think of it as being just a system that has various settings and so much material I suppose, to choose from to build your own idea of a setting. Where do you see that line being crossed where what would Dungeons & Dragons have to do in order to become a official setting or what is all the effort they've put in to make these different realms and like they have just infinite material on this stuff. Where is that, you know, how do you... To kind of justify saying that it's setting agnostic to me. I, I, I'm having a hard time with that. Um, simple. When you actually look at the mechanics that um, reinforce setting in Dungeons & Dragons context, 
really it's held together onto the base mechanics with, you know, duct tape at best. Because if you look at games that are, aren't setting agnostic, that are very much, you cannot play this without the setting, without some serious um, tinkering under the hood, you'll notice that um, the setting-specific mechanics are integrated into the very core of the system. So a good example of this would be um, a lot of the old World of Darkness stuff. New World of Darkness can sort of um, get away with being a little more agnostic because it's designed from the ground up to be more modular. But Old World of Darkness, as soon as you try and take all of, say, the vampire clans out of um, how vampire works, the thing just falls apart. Hmm. Um, one example I really like with that is um, Red Markets. So for those who don't know, it's a bit of an indie project, that one, um, done by the guy who was DMing for most of Roleplay Public Radio. Um, forget his name off the top of my head. <laughs> but anyway, so Red Markets is a zombie apocalypse setting, but it's focused on the economics of it all. So it's tied intrinsically into what's called the carrion economy, which is literally looting the ruins of human civilization, a payday. Everything about the game is tied into um, attrition of resources and negotiating for higher pay. As soon as you take those elements out of red markets, the game, like the tone completely goes out the window and the game falls apart. D&D doesn't really have that because when you take a mechanic out of D&D in isolation that's setting specific, it's usually a niche thing off to the side. Like, if you cut psionics out of um, D&D entirely, you know, that might get you off to from some of the parts of um, Planescape or... Um, Athos, which is the Dark Sun setting, you might have issues incorporating that, but Faerun's almost completely unaffected unless um, you, know, you want Mind Flayers to be part of the game. Right, but there's there are points at which it, it intersects into the the logic of the, the... I mean, certainly when you're creating a character, they they recommend all sorts of backstory that is integrated into the world, it doesn't feel when I'm making a character like it's... It's... A small point on that. It, like, if you look at the D&D rules for character creation, the rules about the monsters, that sort of thing, it doesn't mention a single place name or organization or anything like that. The closest I can think of off the top of my head is the names for the paladin or like oaths could be considered like an organization, but no. You can just sort of pick them up and drop them in any setting, any world, and it doesn't make a difference. Like, I could run a game of D&D tomorrow and say, there are no tieflings in this setting, and it would affect basically nothing in the rules. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what I'm getting at, because especially with the backgrounds, like you were saying there, Pullman, um, the way 5e is written there is only vague allusions to names and organizations. Hmm. They're not specifically singled out as, you must be part of this. And the ones that do name them, you'll notice a setting specific, like, um, say, Simic, that came from Ravnica. And that was a magic gathering thing anyway in the first place. 
So, so the distinction you're making is that the game doesn't break when you remove elements or places. It, it would eliminate certain options or force you to re-fluff certain parts, perhaps, but on a system level, it doesn't, it doesn't become, uh, it doesn't force players to redesign mechanics and sort of break of character builds or something just because of a setting change. Is that, is that the distinction? Well, yeah. Yeah, that's actually a good way of phrasing it because with the old World of Darkness example, um, say we're playing a game of Vampire the Masquerade, but as the storyteller, I say, this game does not have Malkavians. Malkavians do not exist. I will have the table flipped on me in about five seconds because the whole setting does not work if you start playing those sorts of games. Whereas with the Dungeons & Dragons example that Steve put up before, I can say, no Dragonborn. Okay, do we still have elves? That'd be the response, so. Mm, right. That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I always, I never made that that distinction. I always figured that if any part of character creation, like it has to be sterilized from all fluff entirely in order to be considered setting agnostic, not just that it breaks if you change parts of it. I didn't, but that is a, that's an interesting way of looking at it. It means you can have evocative, um, loose sort of tone and fluff and, and inspirational aspects. You could even have quotes from characters and stories involved, but as long as they don't have a mechanical, uh, system specific function that can't be ignored as long as the table can adjust easily um, you could you could say that that's setting agnostic although i wouldn't have i wouldn't have thought of it that way before well i think part of it is sorry quickly uh, i think part of it is the fancy land thing i mentioned before where it does require certain things like dungeons and dragons is in a fantasy world it does have certain elements to it. Like, there is magic involved, usually. But it falls under this really generic fantasy land terminology that we're all used to. That It doesn't feel like it's part of any specific setting. It's just, this is what we expect from this sort of thing. Yeah, I would call that, like, archetypal. It's It, it plays into archetypes that span mythology and, I mean... Dungeons and Dragons almost by definition is trying to be as archetypal as possible with their pantheon of gods and they, they try to accommodate pretty much everything. Um, so in that sense, I, I totally would agree. And that's obviously what's contributed to such a vibrant homebrewing and, and people making hacks and people making their own takes on it. And it's what, ke- go ahead. Personally, I don't feel like that's proof that D&D is setting agnostic. I think it just means that the setting is so unrelated and unrealistic when you take into account the mechanics at play that when you change something, then it still doesn't like fit. It doesn't feel like it doesn't fit anymore. But that's not really a setting agnostic thing so much as just being bad at writing fluff. Right. <laughs> 
way, someone wouldn't really mind if you dumped an entire jar of salt into food if it was already inedible. Um, the reason you can't do that with a lot of other settings is just it's constructed well enough that when you take something away, there's obviously a hole there and it's distracting. In the sense in which if you have a setting where your character can't possibly make any difference, your character has no agency, if elements of the setting don't make a difference whether they're there or not, then those elements have no agency. And the reality is if you wanted to interact with the setting in a way that, like, puts all of your abilities into play, then you quickly realize that none, like nothing really makes sense anyways. I'm glad I had my mic muted for that because I kind of started laughing. Um, yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, I genuinely think that um, a lot of the D&D fluff writing wasn't um, mechanically thought out in the sense that it wasn't, there wasn't mechanics built around, say, interacting with the world on a particular level that is backed up with um, mechanics that affect the players directly. So, yeah, I will say that you're right on that point. Um, but drawing back to the World of Darkness comparison I was making before, and with the gods and the pantheon and how D&D can get away with being archetypical, um, if you were to gut all of the gods and change them with other gods, nothing changes um, throughout most of the game as long as you fill sort of the quota that meets the um, mechanics that are already in play. With the World of Darkness version, though, as soon as you take out, say, Kane from Vampire the Masquerade, the power generation system falls apart. Hmm. So... Well, just related to that, I just picked up my 5e player's handbook. In the cleric creation part, where it actually says, hey, create a a cleric character, it does, you know, it says, choose a god, but it doesn't actually require you to choose a deity at all. And then there's a separate table with... Yeah. yeah, Appendix B has a list of the gods. And just as viable... Yeah, just as viable as the choice from any of the expected settings, which it just sort of mentions briefly, is the Norse gods. And in theory, I could show up to a D&D game where, you know, if we haven't had the setting explicitly labeled out for us, I could show up and go, yeah, I'm a cleric of Thor. And this is actually where Molly's got a really good point on um, how it's not... Sorry, go. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, like, but what you couldn't do is, though, show up to the table and say, okay, I'm playing an atheist who's not delusional or stupid. I mean, I've had that guy at my table. Um... Please tell me that just whenever he tried to cast a cleric spell, for some reason it didn't work. <laughs> well, they refused to play cleric. Um... No, it's just thinking before that it is true that that's not proof that um, D&D is strictly saving agnostic. Um, but I guess at the very least 5e made overtures toward that. Like if you read, say, the DMG and um, some of the passages on world building in the DMG actually refer to, oh, your setting could have this, but it could also have this. It does at least pay lip service to the idea. Older editions I can't quite comment on because I'm not quite as well-versed, but... Yeah, I almost feel like setting agnostic is 
is a term that needs to be, uh, we need to have a different term for this because it's, you know, I'm thinking of the difference between agnostic and atheist. It's like, is it a setting, a system that doesn't even tell you a setting or a, you know, world that you would sort of by default integrate like GURPS or something like that. Although even they, I think in the last edition started to flesh out a default setting. Generic universal is two distinctions. Yeah. To me, for a set of mechanics to be setting agnostic, it means that I can sit at home, come up with whatever setting comes to mind. And I should ideally be able to take that set of mechanics and it would work fairly well within what I want. Yeah, and that's actually why I'm agreeing that there probably needs to be a different distinction for this particular example, because D&D specifically, there is a um, a concept that if you did take it out, the entire game does fall apart, at least on the side of magic, and that is the concept of um, the weave and how magic interacts with the various uh, magic using classes. As soon as you tinker with that, magic falls apart. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, because magic is essentially the metaphysics of the world. It's not just fluff. It's, you know, it's not just powers with fluff. It's supposed to be a logic for how, how everything works so that you could derive implications from that. If you have the weave, then you could start integrating that into all sorts of choices and situations you come across. And so it, it, it is more integrated into the, the, like I said, the situations that come out of the setting, and if it's setting agnostic, it means it should be able to handle settings and it, it, with situations that don't have those moorings and those that sort of thing holding it all together and driving it. It has to be, it has to work just as well without that logic, without that internal logic to it. And I don't feel like D and D does that, but I get what you're saying, and maybe there should be a different term for it. Okay, so maybe a turn might be you divide into three options of uh, setting agnostic where it doesn't care what the setting is. These are just the general rules. Maybe sort of like setting assumptions where it doesn't tell you what the setting is, but it just makes the assumptions, you know, for D&D, there's magic. Swords are a viable thing to use in combat. Uh, you know, there's divine options, that sort of thing. Then specific settings, which would be the world of darkness ideas. So sort of like treating it more like a gradient than... Uh, setting agnostic or setting confirmed. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I'm sure that if we actually really dug into it, there would be a lot of, uh, a lot more meat there that we could actually explore because, um, you know, I, I'm thinking of the, like your example of a, I guess you would have a suggested setting or a, assumptions, I guess, but having a sample setting, having, you know, there's, it's an interesting thing that, I see a lot of designers just sort of taking for granted as I've done more podcasts and talk to people. It's a lot of things are just taken for granted of what the options are. You either have a setting that is, you know, fully integrated into the, the system, or you have one that is take it or leave it. And then ones that are so generic that they refuse to even suggest ideas of what the setting is. Um, although it does generally fall along those three lines. So, one other point I was going to make that's, that just seems uh, relevant and interesting here is that just uh, yesterday I uh, published an article on Minds on my Minds account um, 
it's called Agency in the Other World, and it's a response to a, an RPG designer that was talking there about his wanting to create a magical realm um, and approach it in a... I shouldn't have said magical realm. That sounds... <laughs> there's such a meme behind that. Um, but, you know, he wanted to have the this idea of the other world, and his point was that there was a... Um, in, in traditional ancient mythology, there was this sense that all around the world, any, like, you go into a forest and suddenly it's a magic realm. You go on, on the top of a mountain, anywhere people don't normally go, that kind of takes courage to go, can be the other world, the magical realm where things happen that you wouldn't believe unless you had seen it yourself. And I thought that was a cool distinction he was trying to make between an entirely official separate dimension like in D D having these multiple uh different dimensions or realms or whatever ice realm fire realm all this kind of stuff and and trying to just sort of integrate it into a localized phenomenon that can appear almost anywhere um and my response to that was this article where i was talking about the idea of agency being affected when you start introducing the idea of a separate layer of reality, um, and specifically, you know, maybe I could get your guys' take on this because I just thought this was uh, sort of overlapped here. D and D, I say in this article, is it has a weak structure, and you know, it it doesn't demand. Uh, that you obey it. In fact, it almost demands that you disobey it. It almost requires you to ignore large sections and requires you to customize it to the point where it becomes your own setting. I don't think I know of anybody who tries to incorporate all of the D&D lore. I don't know if it's even possible to or if there's contradictions in there. But um, even within their separate sort of Eberron or whatever these different uh, I'm pretty sure there are about four or five different oldest races alive. Or <laughs> yeah, um, Eberron by design can't work with the other settings like that because um, Eberron, for instance, rejects the idea of always evil races. So right, right, right. Drow in Eberron are not lawful evil by nature. And so, you know, I was I was just kind of making the point that it was a weak sort of setting, not a, a forceful, imposing setting, or maybe I guess you could say it's a sort of a, a loose setting or a generous setting, um, sort of structure to the whole thing where the the metaphysics and the explanation for how things work, the logic behind different classes, all that stuff is, like Molly said, it, it's disjointed, it doesn't really add up, and it's up to you to sort of sort it out and pick what you want. But then... On top of that, um, I feel like when you start to, and this is a more general, like, RPG design topic that I'm kind of struggling with myself, is that when you want to evoke that sense of something being unknown and magical, which I feel like is part of the, the reason to do a setting agnostic or a loose setting is to leave things open for, for the GM to, have their way with and, and, you know, design whatever they want. You have a, a trade-off between systems and surprises or mystery and logic. You have 
mystery on one hand being this thing that entices you, draws you in, makes you want to know, and logic is the thing that tells you, here it is, here is how it works, now it's not a mystery anymore, it's not it's not intriguing anymore, it's not seductive anymore. What do you guys feel about that balance? And this guy's article I was responding to was trying to say, you know, that to sort of not make an official logic for how now you go to this realm, you step through the portal, and now you are in the magic realm or whatever. It's like it could be anywhere. And my my concern is now the players go from thinking they know how things work and they're making choices and even long-term plans based on the logic of how the world works. Now they step into a forest and suddenly the fucking rules are, you know, out the, out the window and now they're, you know, the squirrels are talking and there's like, you know, this, these sort of heroic tales of old, um, often rely on absurdities and, and juxtapositions and, and contrivances that are so out there that that's why they become mythologies in the first place. And I don't really know how to balance that in my own system. And I respect player agency so much that I want everything to be a hard and fast system. But at the same time, as a player, I also want to be left guessing and, and be surprised by all sorts of stuff. Um, any of you want to just comment on that general subject, I'd be interested Um, the first comment I'll make is the D&D game in at the moment has an absolutely incredible DM. Like, she is incredible. What really earned my respect in it, like, before we got to this, I respected her anyway, because she was really good. But what made me sort of stand up and be like, wow, she's really good at what she does, is when we went to the Feywild. And as you know, the Feywild, that's the point where rules are suggestions, suggestions are rules, and everything goes out the window. And so, going from, yes, we're in D&D 5e, I understand how this all works, to this point where anything could have happened was genuinely magical. And even when we left, we took a little bit of it with us, so that's that was possibly a mistake on our part. But it means that every now and then, just things can happen that surprise us and leave us wondering what's going to happen next. And that's that's the magical part. Like, as a player... Not knowing what's coming next is what makes the game to me. Um, I would put it like throwing my own input there in terms of so long as the GM knows what they're doing and assures me that way, I'm totally happy to deal with the bizarre and unexpected. What annoys me is when like the GM doesn't really have his own idea of even what is happening. The, like the idea of it's weird and it's not actually possible for you as a player to ever gain any understanding. That kind of makes me feel like it's futile to try. Right. you got to avoid the mommy may I trap. You guys familiar with that, uh, with that concept or that phrase? Uh, um, not at all. Maybe not under that name. Explain it. Go ahead. Uh, mommy may I is basically just a game where you ask if you may do a thing and then the parent either gives you permission or not. And then it's sort of like, you know, did this happen? And you're just asking the GM to tell you a story rather than you're actually doing anything. Oh, uh, that's, yeah, I'm familiar with it under the term of DM, may I? Um, oh, okay, yeah. And, and that's actually 
if you want to know where the core of a lot of my work on the dunce hack is, it's actually trying to contend with that mentality because the mechanical incentivization in 5e seems to be, it's not heavy on DMAI, but it does nudge in that direction. Um, so that might sound like a really controversial thing to say, but, um, not to me. But let's compare it to something like, say, you know, Eclipse Phase or World of Darkness or, you know, pick a bunch of other games that are, um, more skill based. Even Paranoia could actually follow under this, where it's anything you could justify within the purview of your skill is what you're allowed to do. So you can, your power and agency as a character is constrained by the point that the DM simply says no. D&D 5e as a design concept, and even some of the older editions, seem to be more like your power is constrained so long as the DM says yes. Uh, you're going to have to explain that one to me. That, that sounded backwards. Um, okay, so I've had arguments at the tabletop um, in D&D games where, you know, oh, you don't get to do this because the spell doesn't allow for this particular usage, or um, no, there's no rule stating that, um, you know, flipping the table will actually provide cover. There's no hard and fast rule stating that your edge case allows the result that you're looking for, therefore, mm. no. D&D really does seem to fall more on along those lines, um, whereas, say, a more skills-based game, maybe it's just... Um, the fact that things tend to be more abstract in those skills-based games, it's kind of like, sure, why not, seems to be the prevailing DM um, uh, interaction of the day. Yeah. It seems more like a culture than it is necessarily a facet of the system itself, though. You are right. However, I think it is emergent from the system because if you read the um, D&D spell list, for instance, it is very specific on how you use the spells. Right. Like, breaking the parameters of the spells is kind of a... It's a big no-no. And when um, you rely on very specific wording to imply negative usage or to imply a limitation because it didn't yeah. explicitly imply it, then that necessarily follows in all other arenas. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think you're right. D&D does that a lot more, and I certainly haven't seen it as much or at all in World of Darkness. So, um, Old World can fall into that only because the disciplines and well, whatever the powers are in your the game you're running um, do have that concrete wording. Um, but New World tried to move away from that because they moved toward a more modular design. Well, I feel like I'm generally following you, but Try to put it in more concrete terms for people who are listening and want to have, you know, an example, a, a takeaway, or a lesson. Uh, what is it about Dunn's hack that that you did to mitigate this and to try to solve, you know, the the mommy may or DM may I problem? Hmm. Honestly, I'm actually not sure if I've done enough to really say concretely. I probably should focus on my um, next efforts on that end because um, 
one thing they were pushing for with the um, agency early you know, power later is to try and move away from that whole unless specifically stipulated um, you cannot do X. But I don't think I've ever actually spelt it out. And so if you were to, like, let's just brainstorm it right now. If you were to try to approach the subject in terms of the game's documentation and the, the, the official way to run it, you're essentially what you have to do, I assume, as a, as a designer is, um, articulate the vision of how to play it, even if it's not in mechanical terms, there at least needs to be guidelines and advice so that everybody can get on the same page as the social contract at the table. And obviously a rules lawyer could go in and try to say, well, it's not explicit, but the nature of a role-playing game is such that if a principle is established, even in the rules, um, you know, it, it tends to have a trickle-down effect all over the place. Oh, no, now that you articulated the question, the answer to that's actually really easy. Um, the solution is simple mechanics with endless depth. So, for instance, um, and that's actually what 3.5 and 3rd edition was trying to do with um, simplifying everything down to a core central mechanic, which is D20 plus modifier against um, dice difficulty. Um, and the idea was that if you can simplify everything down to a singular core mechanical engine, then that could be infinitely usable for any weird edge case or any task that could be thrown your way. Problem is, the rest of the game design didn't back up that ethos. So the just solution... Out, sorry, quickly. Uh, just throwing out a quick point about... You're talking about, uh, just before the point is lost about spells in 5e and how they also state you can do this, you can do that. From a bit of my, you know, just being a general busybody on the internet, there's a lot of discussion I've seen in the past about illusion spells because a lot of illusion spells are really roughly defined as to what exactly they do. Like, how does that play into that particular distinction? That's actually, illusion spells are a place where I think they got the idea right. It's just the rest of the culture surrounding it hasn't quite caught up. Because illusion spells, um, for instance, Silent Illusion, that's licensed to be creative. It's just a lot of um, games... You, you see these horror stories floating around the internet all the time where someone tries to and the DM just says no because it, it's as if the DM doesn't get it. Um, so, no, you, you are right. There are places where... Um, it is what I would consider the right idea. So that's what would reform other schools look like, though. I mean, oh, sorry, I couldn't hear you over the Discord pings. Yeah, you being popular over there. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> um, uh, I'm asking you, know, what would it be? What would the free form be like in other schools of magic, though? Like, what does free form necromancy look like? What does free form I guess divination's a bit more wide open, similar to illusion. Um, you know, but transformation, uh, transmutation, conjuration, evocation. At what point do those, I mean, aren't those restricted for a reason to some extent? Otherwise, they just sort of have no limits at all. Uh, one of the problems I've really faced in my attempts at building a magic system has often been conservation of energy. 
breakage that's really, really bad in its implications. Um, in case you guys, question, actually. in case you guys didn't know, Thade and Molly have one of the most uh, <laughs> thought through uh, attempts at at uh, permitting. Like everything under the sun in a, in a coherent metaphysics, uh, and literally respecting the thermodynamics and, and real life, you know, simulation of scientific principles while having magic. And, um, it's, it's kind of a sight to behold the, the lengths they go to, to, to want to elegantly simulate all these things. So they're an interesting couple to talk to about. About this particular subject of the the implications of a exact mechanical phrasing or execution. I make it, she breaks it. Um, if you're directing that question over my way, um, I'd say now this is coming from just off the cuff because I haven't quite finished all of my notes for how I redo spells. Um. I'd say transmutation shouldn't be too much of a problem because transmutation is all about changing what's there. Um, conjuration is all about moving things from one place to another. But evocation... Evocation, to me, has always been a risk-reward thing. Like, to me, evocation should be allowed to bend the rules, but the cost for screwing it up is insurmountably high. I mean, I've accidentally ruined, like, two campaigns now with just the idea of changing what's already there. I mean, what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, give an example, that because... ruined with quotation marks. <laughs> well, it, yeah, playtesting, right? If, if it's broken, you still got good information. I mean, are we talking about the classic turning lead into gold and that breaks the economy, or, or what, what are we talking about? Well, um, there's that on an economy scale, but it doesn't really come up that much because, to be honest, most GMs don't actually bother to simulate a world currency market, which means that it's very easy for a GM to say, well, over your lifetime, it's going to be a drop in the bucket, so I'm not too worried about it. But it's more that, um, for one of our playtesting campaigns, where we tried to fiddle around with red magic, it quickly just became this unsatisfying, like, me walking through everyone because um, I exploited a thing where if magic is detrimental to someone, they save against it. But someone making a will save cannot sustain the sophistication and energy to keep a magical spell going when it's expiring. So I would take an already unstable element, transmute it into something stable, and then just leave it somewhere as a trap. And when people enter the radius, it doesn't matter how much they save, you can't save, you know, you can't make a will save against the effects of chlorine gas when it's just mundane <laughs> chlorine gas that I've disguised as a ham sandwich. But chlorine gas would invoke a um, constitution saving throw. That's my argument. Um, and the problem is that, like, perhaps in D&D people would have slightly more of a chance. Um... In our setting, although the magic can do a lot of, well, it's not even a lot of crazy stuff, it's just stabilizing an unstable element, but there's not a lot of healing and there's not a lot of supernatural talents that most people are going to, you know, 
pick up. So it just became a thing where I know safe that I pretty much everything, and we had to face the reality that if I can do this, then everyone else can do this. Like I actually looked at a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality statistics to come up with an idea of what is actually realistically valid. So, so when you say you ruined the campaign, basically you just became a walker. <laughs> Wait, there wasn't any point in playing it anymore because there wasn't really a challenge. To give you an example that would work in D and D, though, is um, rocks fall, everybody dies. There's no save against this, really. Oh, so, I hate that kind of thing. Sorry. Well, right. That's the crux of the whole discussion here. Is is that you know rocks fall, everyone dies is sort of the you know that you don't actually have you only have the illusion of agency and that the hard limit. If you go past it, is the unsavable situation. It is the ever escalating bullshit you have to deal with until you give up on your plan. I mean, that is, that is mommy may I, that's the road to that. It is, you know, it doesn't start there. It starts with small punishments and pressures and shooting down rules. And, and I know Thade and Molly are probably more opposed to that mentality of playing than anybody I've ever talked to. Uh, they deeply hate the idea of of being told no when you have a logically valid point in that world. And in my experience, in my observation, that's where magic becomes such a pain in the ass to design, especially when you want to have that sort of delicate, um, you know, mysterious quality to magic. They have stripped magic of its mysterious quality they they have turned magic into a science in their setting in order to avoid having any argument i mean you would have to make a scientifically logical argument for being able or for not being able to do something otherwise as long as it is logically viable you are allowed to do anything and that's where molly is great at breaking these paradigms and and making you know forcing fade to rethink it all and it's led to some, led to some crazy, uh, crazy level of research they've had to do to try to, to flesh things out. But there's nothing wrong with that approach. It's just, um, I guess how deep into the mechanics and the edge cases you want to get. Because, um, how you were saying before about, you know, unsavable situations and, you know, what Molly was describing with the chlorine gas and so on. There's actually a very easy counterbalance to all of those sort of situations that can keep the game from going into, I guess, a downward death spiral. Fate points. Now, I think we've spoken about this outside of you know, this discussion here at length because I have quite strong opinions on the subject. I haven't heard them, so, I mean... Okay. Um, fate points are there to offload the responsibility of narrative control and player agency from the DM back to the players. Their purpose is to involve the players directly in the formulation of the story. That sounds a bit weird and high, like... High concept. High concept, I know. But if you think about it like this... Um, if the characters have fate points and a reasonable expectation of being able to access them, therefore more incentivization to actually use them, what 
actually happens is um, at any point the player genuinely feels, no, the story does not want to go, like, I don't believe the story should go this direction, I can say no. That, like, if we're talking about player agency, you can't get um, greater than that. Oh, right, okay. It's why Red Markets has a succeed at cost option as well, and I really love the option where it's, at any point, you can haggle for your way with DM. So if you fail a test that would kill your character, you can haggle saying, no, that doesn't happen, this happens. To which the DM replies, okay, but what are you willing to give up? Are you willing to give up all your character's gear? Are you willing to give up all your reputation? Are you willing to burn bridges with this lot of NPCs over here? Are you willing to lose your leg over it? My skin is crawling hearing about this. Um, I I almost can't imagine a more agonizing situation as a player than trying to economize my ability to reason uh, with <laughs> reason in situations and being being dealt harsh ultimatums for if I'm not willing to. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about this in 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 very cynical terms. It it, it goes from mommy may I to how much does this cost me to you know. Avoid being well, being gang raped by uh, you know the pack of wolves you just summoned because you didn't like what I was going to do or something. It's it's to kind be fair. It works in red markets specifically because red markets is a post-apocalyptic game about you know the fact that you're going to starve to death before the zombies eat you. So it works in that context. I literally just realized I'd forgotten to mute myself. Um, I felt everyone was just talking over me. Oh, oh no! Yeah. So sorry. We couldn't hear you. No, no, it, it's totally cool. Um, I just want to say, in terms of the um, fake points, I totally agree with Coleman here. It feels like, to me, it's somewhat of a superfluous thing, because technically, in any game, I can just look at the GM and go, no, that's not cool. And we're going to negotiate about this, or else, you know, I'm going to walk away from the table. And that's essentially what you're doing with your fake points. There's nothing stopping the GM from saying, like, well, no, go screw yourself, and your only leverage is leaving the table. So to quantify it, I feel like it's more limiting than to, like, just leave it up to the players. But fate points provide a framework where that negotiation doesn't ever get to the point of, no, if you keep doing this, I'm going to walk away from the table. It gives a framework where that stays within the acceptable framework of the um, game's operation. It gives it a, a, a pre-established, agreed-upon currency or a boundary zone, I guess. But exactly, well, like it, it's really odd to agree to join a game where the GM doesn't have enough respect for you to listen when you're like, "No, that's not cool." This is. Another problem I would have with the fate points that I actually voiced and didn't realize I had muted it <laughs> is um, it works right up until you get to PvP and when everyone has an equal amount of fate points. And then um, I, I, I try to make the game with a sort of agnosticism about who in the story is being played by a player. Right, like every every single thing has a roughly the same amount. I give players a slight advantage in terms of uh, starting stats. In that you actually get to designate them, whereas a lot of NPCs have to roll for them. Right, but um, otherwise, a lot of it, a lot of the system is just everyone is still human. Everyone is still similarly limited by their abilities, and 
I'm losing I'm losing track of where where this connects in with the subject. I'm sorry. I just have to. It's an argument against fate points because if you have player versus player, if you have two PCs, then who are trying to defeat each other, then you basically are just in an immediate rush to burn the fate points. Like sorry, if, that... if, I, if my player falls for Molly's trap, and I spend all my fate points to escape it, and she sends all her fate points to make sure it works. What so effect- I see. effectively, that's um, isn't that the DM's job to deal with um, you know, player interaction like that? Like, well, it is. You know, but in this case, both players are burning their fate points, telling the GM, "No, you make this go my way." I don't see how that's meaningfully different to a system that doesn't have fate points, and the GM has to come in saying, "No, you can't use spell slots for that. You can't use these resources for that." I don't see how that's meaningfully different. That's by the case. Doesn't solve. It doesn't solve the issue. Right. Which is why we're still advocating for basically a GM agnostic system. <laughs> no, I can see the appeal. I of have that. played one like that. The old Warhammer Quest game. I really enjoyed that back in the day. What is it? Uh, basically, it was a like just. This is a quick tangent. Uh, it was a game where instead of having a GM, you just had some decks of cards, and you just turned over a card and was like, okay, uh, next room that comes up is a 8 by 8 treasure room with, let's turn over another card, 8 gold. And yeah. you just, like the, gold, like the monsters followed these basic rules of how they acted. You fought them, went to the next room, just kept doing it until you got to the objective. I mean, you have the obvious limitations built in there, but... I do see the how it it, it is GMless, but it is also the bare minimum of what I would call a role playing game. Yeah, it's a dungeon crawl. Um, Kingdom Death does something Basically, similar. Yeah. So you can run D and D four e that way as well, because um, all the monsters in the D and D four e framework have, I think they call it AI or something, or at least that's what players call it. So in terms of you know, the original question was sort of a general concern about agency in a in situations where the logic of the situations are are contrived, they're delicate, they're scripted, or they're sort of carefully arranged in a way that that's usually where I find GMs tend to try to curb uh, player choice and just essentially bag them to play along with the the script or the the situation because there's a lot hinging on things playing out a certain way and most players have an unspoken or maybe even explicit agreement to just go along in those cases and not cause trouble but i actually specifically love the idea of uh not making that easy not not making it easy for a gm to pigeonhole players and fate points is Sort of a hard and clumsy way, I feel like, to do that. It's, it's straight up saying, if I come up with a shitty idea as a GM, you can force me to think harder. It is kind of what I feel like it is. It's a, which is fine as a brute force strategy, but, um, isn't it, isn't there something higher we should be trying to do in the, in the system itself to, sort of respect player agency without literally having to turn it into a, a currency? Well, the well, thing is, though, that... Sorry, go. 
I was just going to quickly say, I think part of it might be that at the moment we're discussing fake points like, uh, no, when, like, I haven't really played many games that use fake points, but every time I've played them, it's been more of a, like, a yes and. So, inst- like, for the example of the explosion, it wouldn't be a, you know, no, it doesn't blow up. It would be a, it ex- blows up, but I managed to slip away in time. So, you know, you could have suffered so-and-so, but you know someone's trying to kill you now. So it, it adds on to the story rather than gives a hard full stop no to what might be happening next. Right. And I, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't trying to frame it as being a, a complete no either. I know that that was the, the initial example that, that Dunce gave, but, um, I do think it is sort of a, a prompt or a, a demand to reconsider the situation and its outcomes in presumably a more logical or fair or, enjoyable way for players it's 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 base yeah that's what i see it as the thing that you've got to remember here is the dm's role in any given game is basically god so the more rules that you constrain upon the dm the more agency you're moving from them to actually be able to tell the story at hand in some systems that's perfectly fine some systems are designed for that constraint to be you know part of the point some systems don't really play well with that though and that's exactly that's exactly the i think the crux of it and and that's probably a divide that that you don't even need to bridge because it's such a preference but in molly and thade's case i know they are extremely vocal and explicit about wanting to be simulation not storytelling in the sense that the gm tells a story and you go along for this fun ride it's it's the opposite it's the world exists. Yeah, I'm, story. I'm just a referee. He's a, not. He's not supposed to be God at all. Act. I never act. Right. Um, I sort of lean that way, and I actually believe the GM's role is fundamentally to to have secrets prepared that they're the setting benefits from having secrets and. A secret can be something very mundane and, you know, secretly there's a, a lake behind this mansion. I mean, that doesn't matter, but it might become useful depending on what your character wants to do. But you don't see it until you see it and you have to discover it. And NPCs can have secrets. Everyone can have secrets. And so the the role is not to enforce any story or to try to even tell a story. It is also players must they are compelled to create uh, larger goals to establish the framework of what all of the point of everything is. And that is what drives the story fundamentally. The GM never gets a vote in what the players want to do or are trying to do, but not from the simulationist angle as much as uh, as the structure of you know, in, in my example, I have literally the, the player group has to agree on a mission to do before they can go and do it. That simulation-wise doesn't make any sense at all. You could spend, you know, three weeks of in-game time lounging around or going on a road trip with no purpose and just being aimless wanderers in, in reality. That would be perfectly fair to simulate. But for the sake of structure and moving forward and putting the proper uh, prompts in place, I I ask players to tell the GM what they're 
goal is for the next accomplishment they want to make as a group. And that's how I kind of focus the direction everything has to go and the GM has to respond to that. Um, so that's a different take yet on the, the question of how to get agency in there, get the GM out of the sort of, uh, that's why I also don't like the term game master or dungeon master. The, the idea of glorifying the role of the, the GM and sort of having a, this godlike storyteller persona is something I, I actively dislike, at least for my own style or preferences. Well, what you're describing in terms of your ideal game and what you're aiming for, um, I know I keep bringing up red markets, but it is a really good example of what you're describing. Um, that game was designed for the DM to be more play referee than to actually control what's going on. Because nearly everything in the game that the DM brings to the table is random rolled. Um, most of the interactions that um, player characters have with the world, it, the mechanics are contingent on them. Like, the difficulty of a dice check, it's in the roll system itself. So there's no opposed checks because the DM just never rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, and it even do- doesn't even call a DM, the DM it calls it the market. Um, so those sorts of games do exist, and there is a place for them, but after playing a lot of red markets, there is a downside, because you can't ever have the perfect system. And the downside is that when you lump too much agency onto the player, what can happen is that the story and the game just dies after it hits point of stagnation. Um, for instance, with um, well, the last game of Red Markets I played, it ended on a pretty anticlimactic note because we got eaten by a pack of dogs. Total party wipe. And there was... We had burnt all of the bridges in-game to the point where there was no social backup as well, so there was no one to pass the baton on to. So that was it. That was just end story, full stop, done. Because there was no DM-enforced overarching story um, at play, there was no reason to sustain the game. It was done. Sure. I mean, that. I don't know whether that's an exception or a, a sort of a, a predictable occurrence in a system like that. I'm not familiar with that system. It certainly happened to me in my relatively low GM effects system. And uh, I mean, the good news is that with mine, if I have to, I can switch and try and drag people along. It's just not really built for it, and it's not as much fun. I don't foresee that being a problem in my own because of the structure. Once once the players have said what they want to do, the GM is obligated to essentially flesh out the path that they will have to take to get there. It's not like the players get to decide whether there's a mountain in their way or not. They just get to decide that they have this destination or they want to accomplish these things. And that is the story. Now, what what form it takes and what obstacles are in the way, what secrets are kept from them along the way, that is where the GM has tons of agency and players are not expected to be able to. And it's also definitely not random. So it's not simulated. It's not random. I do. I, I actually really care about the GM's role. I want the GM to be heavily involved and to have an interesting setting. I just don't want them to 
tell a story or to dictate the narrative. Um, well, that- this is what I was getting into right at the start when I was talking about the different um, the different things that people want to get out of their experience. Is mm-hmm. that some people are actually legitimately just looking for that story. Some people do want to be told a story. That's true. I mean, telling one of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. You, you don't seem to be talking much about. Are you concerned about the the mommy may I or the GM may I phenomenon? Or is there anything you do in your system to try to counter that? Do you like the idea of fate points? What do you feel about all that? I was mostly staying quiet just because I wasn't sure where to jump in. But basically, like in the triangle of gamist, simulationist, and narrativist, I'm pretty firmly narrat- a narrativist, sort of with a bit of a lean towards gamist stuff. Like, my system is designed around the idea of how can we use this to tell an interesting story. So for me, the, the challenge, or not the, it's not that much of a challenge, but one of the focuses is making sure it's not just the GM narrates a story, but making sure it's something that the players drive. Because, like, of my three stats, two of them are how are you affecting change? So, like, a core goal is how to make sure players are in charge of things. And, again, I'm tooting my own horn by bringing up more stuff about my system, but... One of the systems in it I'm really happy with is the scene system. Because my game is meant to simulate a, almost like a television series. So during what would be considered downtime, like between major events that GM causes, there's just scenes where players are given a resource they can spend called a scene, and they can go, okay, I'm going to use this scene to heal. And that's basically, okay, you go to a hospital or you spend some time in bed rest or whatever, and other people, like, you know, it goes to the next player, and they go, I was going to do something that's connected to his healing. I'm going to, actually, one sec, I'll see if I can find the exact terminology I used. It's thrown up somewhere. Uh, actually, no, I won't look it up, because that's just effort. Uh, but say, um, you could have uh, spend a scene on interaction. That's where you try to create a firmer bond with another character while they're doing their healing scene. And that creates, like, a, a benefit, where, because these two scenes are interacting one of the players gets something better. So this idea of it's about creating the story of these characters. And this could be a wider story the GM's working for, or there could be, uh, you know, they're getting the players to push forward and determine the larger story that's happening. But I think in general, the focus has to be on the story. Even when you're going for a more simulation sort of thing, what players want to get out of it is, this is cool. Some, like a story they can tell. Like every time you hear players talking about an RPG, what they're talking about, the story they excitedly tell, is something their characters did. And that can emerge from the rules, that can emerge from whatever, but you want to give them that story to tell. I mean, that's a, as, as a point of principle, I think that's, that's pretty much agreed upon. Uh, the question is, is how to get there and what what makes for a good story? Um, obviously, dying to a random pack of dogs isn't most people's idea of a, a satisfying conclusion. And personally, not having experience with that, I've I actually look forward to having a game that plays like that because I've I've basically only had experiences where, as a player, where uh, things are so. Uh, set up for my character's success and are so wholly devoted to the idea of this satisfying narrative that is broken into discrete chapters that, you know, everything is, is so laid out for me that, uh, 
I feel like all I'm doing is facilitating somebody's, you know, story, their, their novel that I get to, you know, say my lines when it's my turn. And I want that sense of breaking free from that, dictating my own path. And I feel like if there's not something of a real risk that you'll be killed by a pack of dogs, if you've taken on that risk, then your success doesn't feel as real either. Like, it feels like you had to have overcome something real. I don't think, you know, mundane things should just kill you out of nowhere. Um, that wouldn't be satisfying. But at the same time, if there's not some threat, it's also not satisfying. Well, and then... I call it Cthulhu, yeah? I'm sorry, what? You guys have played Call of Cthulhu, yeah? No, I've heard no. people talk about it, but I, I'm not, I actually hate Lovecraft. I refuse to touch anything that he, he uh, in yeah. his work, is associated with. That's a side tangent, but... What Just is... saying, it, it sounds to me like you've, you guys have spent a lot of time playing games that are like D&D, that are like, you know, very much a power fantasy, and haven't spent well... much time with games that are more... Let's punish you just for, you know, looking into things a little too deep. Well, it's not that I haven't played games in harsh environments, but that's the idea, is that the dangers make sense. If I'm going to go on an expedition in the Arctic Circle, then yeah, every hour of every day is a struggle. I constantly have to deal with super logistic stuff. But at the same time, if I my character, who's a businessman, is just going from his house to the store, then I don't feel like it should be a game thing where it's possible for me to just trip over some stairs and die, even though like probably millions of people do. Yeah, it's about the excitement of the threat. Like, it, it's if about you make... the appropriateness of... It, it's about the fittingness of the threat, really. It's the difference between a risk you acknowledge that you have to overcome in order to get what you want, and just something that comes out of nowhere. Like, I would also be really confused if I played a really well-set-up campaign, and then the final boss is literally just a giant space fleet from nowhere. Like, that had no foreshadowing to it. It would also be kind of really weird and unsatisfying. That's also throw cool, some right? Throw in some Watchmen shape. <laughs> um, now... Now, to your point about playing other systems where it's about punishing players, that's certainly not at all what I'm aiming for for my system. And I, I do trust that that's a, you know, there's plenty of systems that I don't even know exactly how mechanic as a design you would enforce that. It would have to be almost a tone that you set in the rules that I'm sure that that's what Cthul- Call of Cthulhu is all about, is to set a tone in which... Uh, everything sucks and, and your character just goes crazy and, and all that uh, garbage. Actually, yeah, the beautiful thing about um, mechanical incentivization of tone like that is if you set it up right, because um, 90% of games are, um, well, whatever statistic, um, are what you'd call a classic um, comedy format. And I don't mean like you know, the modern definition where it's you know laughter and you know, bad comedic timing. Um, but more like characters are in a constant state of gain. That's what level-up systems are, right? But if you build your mechanics to incentivize um, 
risk versus reward and a constant state of loss. That is, no matter what you do, your character is never ahead. They're always, you know, one step back from last scene. Like, they've spent one too many fate points or, you know, they're low on ammo when they really shouldn't be. You can incentivize a system by tragic format. So you can actually build it into mechanics itself, and it's not that hard. Fusion is the word of the day. I, I see that. Um, in my own system, I I got complaints when I was explaining the the combat system um, last year. I was explaining it to some people, and they were concerned about the fact that I essentially have a death spiral in my game in some form, and and there was all this, you know, people warning me not to have a death spiral, and I recontextualized death in my game by having the succession idea and to, in my system dying does not mean the same thing dying means in a different game so I don't need to be as precious with people's characters um, the, your, when your character dies it can actually be a great thing for your your overall legacy because dying gloriously is way more inspiring than sort of dying you know, just comfortably at an old age with having very little risk. It's, so there's a, there's a trade-off there that's different. And I had to try to explain the, the psychology experience changing as the, the consequences died. And that, I feel like not a lot of designers explore that, um, idea that there's always an assumption that your character's life is paramount and therefore telling a good story means they always make it out at the last second or whatever that, uh, whereas I don't think that's, that's, I mean, that's a, that's an okay story, but it's so predictable and it's so, um, as a player, I just noticed that I lost interest and felt like I was just painting by numbers because death was essentially off the table and, if I played a game where death was like guaranteed and nothing I did really mattered, I think I would be equally frustrated. Um, I want the situation. That's the key word in my system sort of design philosophy is that the situation is what matters. It's not the player's, um, story of the narrative they think their story is going to be. If they think they're going to be a great hero and they die from doing something stupid, well, that's your story. You you don't get to dictate what your story is. The story becomes whatever you manage to accomplish. And the situation is what I try to emphasize over and over and over. And then giving tools and a narrative and a, a setting and, and and everything to the GM so that they can create situations that are satisfying and challenging and worth exploring and negotiating uh, on their own terms and I feel like, like I don't subscribe to the, the gamer, a gamist, narrativist, simulationist terminology as, as being the paradigm, although I think it's a useful sort of, uh, sort of bar that we can all just sort of have a common description, I guess. But, um, I'm not sure where this would fit into it because I don't feel like it's a game setting a, a game thing where it's just about accomplishment and leveling up and power and winning. Well, it's also not about 
telling a great story, and I really don't care about simulating. So it's it's just a situation-based design, and players largely get to dictate what situations they get into, but what that situation ends up being and the secrets within it are sort of in the hands of the GM. It's a different balance, maybe. Well, that's why I prefer looking at it from the, um, you know, what people want to get out of the story and identifying um, their interests in their um, engagement. That's what I was looking for. Um, because that is more useful to me in that regard. Because, like, when it comes to, say, um, how you're talking about death spirals, I can rattle off about half a dozen games off the top of my head that actually have inbuilt death spirals into their game because that's just the tone. You know, Cork was the lowest hanging fruit of that, but um, Unknown Armies does it, Red Markets does it. Um, if you want to go even weirder, Necronica does it. Um, so the trade-off is essentially um, knowing what your players want out of the game and understanding when to utilize the mechanics to really leverage that. Yeah, that's why I find it interesting what Steve said about the the idea of the scenes. As a structural format, I really like being heavy-handed with the structure of a game, uh, which I think is is a point where I would strong I would probably really diverge from Molly and Thade. There is that they have a very open-ended. Uh, just it's the whole game is just from what I understand it's just basically a continuous discussion of reality and probable outcomes and whereas I want a very strong simple structure driving the experience with some somewhat rules to you know each structural thing so in, in my case the situation and the fact that you have to choose a mission before you get to go and do things you don't get to aimlessly wander in my game it's just not structurally valid um the idea of breaking things into scenes is an even more direct way of forcing players to articulate what they want to accomplish giving them a a framework within to within which to do that and having the discussion orient itself around what the scene is about, quote-unquote. So even though I I don't see my game as being narrativist, and certainly the mechanics are, you know, not not bent that way, um, having that structure, I feel like, is something that we have in common. And I'm curious how far you want to push that, Steve, with your with your uh with grips um you know is everything broken into scenes what if you're playing what is the ideal sort of flow of the game when you have the narrativist focus how does it tie into player agency and and the overall sort of excitement players feel as they're going from one scene to the next or whatever like one of the core goals of the scene concept is putting them in the right frame of mind. Like, I ran a one-shot of the Star Wars RPG a couple of weeks ago, and one of the moments that players just sort of... They lit up a little bit, and like, oh, yeah, this is what we're doing. At the very start of the game, I just played the Star Wars theme and read off an opening crawl. 
and just little things like that that can put the players into the mindset of this is what we're doing. So of explicitly structuring it in terms of scene. I'm trying to put the players in the mindset of think of it like a TV show almost. Your characters are the characters in the show. What's happening next? It, I, the goal is to just try and push that sort of mindset into their thoughts. So with, in terms of how formally it's structured, the scenes thing itself is, that's the explicit sort of downtime. Like it's not downtime in the sense that you've got months off, what do you do with it? But it's downtime in the sense that if this was in a TV show, this would be the moment where things aren't as hectic, where characters can interact, where characters can push their own agenda and try and accomplish stuff. Other than that, well, I do fairly heavily go into that theme to the point where individual sessions, uh, or actually not individual sessions, but individual missions of the things they're trying to accomplish are referred to as episodes. It, hmm. The game has explicit seasons in it where, the, okay, this is a seasonal arc. At the end of three seasons, part of the game, like the game explicitly says, these characters retire. Wow. I see now, even though that's not the kind of game I want to design, I could see myself getting really into that as something to play or even run, I suppose, depending on what kind of tools you give the GM. Um, because I think what I'm learning as I design RPGs and, and try to, you know, think through my preferences more and, and explore it through my design is that structure to me is really the thing that, that holds the experience together and things that lack a structure, uh, and just sort of are this nebulous thing that I felt in D and D where I feel like the lack of structure is what brings out a lot of negative tendencies and then people have to compensate for that by having the GM just dictate a story because when there's no clear thing about what's supposed to happen next, somebody just has to step up and move the plot forward. Somebody has to step up and do a thing. And in the case of a purely simulationist thing, that burden falls on players. Players then become fatigued or run out of ideas or whatever. In the case where the GM is doing it, it then, you know, they start to run out of ideas and it becomes stale for that reason. And, I just feel like structure is the thing that facilitates both sides and lets them have sort of a fair shot at taking turns in in dictating a scene or a, a situation or something like that, maybe. Curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, just quickly, when you're mentioning the lack of structure can cause problems, my first thought about that was Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. One of the major complaints about that is get like a role-playing game where you couldn't role-play. And the main like element of that complaint seemed to be that the actual combat itself was so heavily structured, so rigidly defined, and then the moment you went outside of the combat, it was just like, eh, do your thing. Right, right, yeah, I do, I have heard that complaint. Fourth edition always intrigued me because at the time, I didn't care about the idea of role-playing, I just liked the idea of, you know, tabletop turn-based, cool moves and, and action stuff. I never actually got a chance to play it, but it was actually appealing to me because of the extremely heavy combat structure and playing it like a video game, essentially. Um, but yeah, I never heard anyone uh, excited about or happy about the the rest of it. Um, the 
the free form sort of rope non-structured element and uh what you have going on Steve is sounds like a pretty solid structure when you don't have downtime is it is it supposed to be that a uh GM uh lays out sort of the concept of an episode or is it just sort of sort of self-evident that you're foreshadowing certain things because it is an episodic format that an, an episode typically starts with setting up some conflicts and then resolving them by the end so whatever you start with you know is going to be sort of the theme throughout the the episode so to speak or how do you conceptualize it and explain it to players and gms that's something i do have to work on a bit like i've got a lot of it written down but while i've tested a bunch of stuff the episode structure that's something i need to test a bunch more like so far through conversation people seem to get it but seeing how it plays at the table that's going to be the big and uh and uh dunce how do you where do you fall on this because obviously you're just making a hack of of D and d but I mean you have so much knowledge obviously about these different systems and you have a lot of wisdom to draw from them. What do you see as being trade-offs and problems with too much structure, not enough structure or what this role that structure plays in the in the dynamic and the psychology of player agency and GMs being overbearing or somebody needing to step up and move things forward. How does that work? Well, there's trade-offs in everything you do. I mean, if you're looking at things as a sliding scale of structure to freeform, well, freeform, all you need to do is spend five minutes on internet forum um, freeform role-playing to see the problems emerge um, from that um, mentality. And it's people just kind of go off and do their own thing. Um, there's no centralized anchor for where people can sort of rally around to sustain an ongoing story. Whereas the opposite, with having things too, much, uh, too structured, well, DD4E would have been more successful, in my opinion, if they marketed as a spin-off war game rather than an actual role-play edition. Because as a tactical war game, it is brilliant. But as a tabletop role-playing game, it's not. And with the rigidity comes an inflexibility in how the players can interact with the system itself. Like I said earlier, you want simple rules that have endless depth. Um, when you, things are too rigid what tends to happen is you have endless complexity but not endless depth. So it's complicated and there's a lot to remember, but your limit cases for how you can use them are few. Right, but what Steve was saying, I mean, let's use his example. I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of, you know, infinite complexity in that structure. And maybe that would be something you would just say is, is sort of a light structure or something like that. And, and it wouldn't fall into that territory. At what point do you, f is there an example that you can think of where something is too structured and then, um, you start to see these negative trends where people become overburdened by, by learning the, the different subsystems or whatever it is? Well, D&D &D 4 right there. 
that's a good example because um, it's not just that you have to remember what your class does. It's that you're constantly updating everything that your class does every single level. Um, because in 4E, there isn't really that much in the way of um, class scaling. Uh, if a two abilities do the exact same thing, um, just one is a few more dice damage than the other, you will see that in your class. It's staggered by level, but that's a thing that happens. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that um, it's a lot to remember, but little utility in memorizing. Hmm. Yeah, that that's definitely a good principle of design is to try to be elegant with your your system so that it, it scales. You, you remember one thing and it keeps paying off dividends much later and in different ways. I mean, that's, that's the whole idea of grips having the, the scaling attributes, I'm sure. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's actually why my, sorry, go. For another thing too, if you do want to like sell your system to a market, then that like, improves how willing people are trying your system by so much if they don't feel like they're constantly screwing up how they're supposed to play something. They're constantly forgetting this and that, or it takes like three and a half hours to learn how to play their first character. And that, to me, is part of the appeal of um, Dungeons & Dragons because as a system, it does sort of tell you how to play your character. Um, whereas something like, say, Shadowrun, um, yeah, Shadowrun technically has classes, but most of those are community-driven and, well, the game just sort of hands you the system and expects you to work it out. Hmm. But um, I guess where I sit on the whole thing is there's a reason I prefer D100 roll-under systems. Those are actually my favorite systems to tinker around, to build and to play in because those systems don't lend themselves very well to um, rigidity like that because, I mean, difficulty is determined by simply what is on the skill of your um, dice check on your character sheet. Um, and the systems tend toward um, experience-based systems where it's like, you know, one experience point gets you one skill point in this skill. Where So it is it is a little freer in those terms. Yeah, I've noticed with roll-under systems that there's a different dynamic, and I, I, I have seen it be somewhat problematic where players feel so comfortable uh, with whatever course of action without even, you know, basically consulting the GM that um, they're rolling without even, you know, basically saying what they're doing and people have to be like, what did you just do? It's like, Oh, I rolled for this. And now my character did that. And it's, there's a, there's a danger of uh, players taking for granted things where most, uh, I assume all roll under systems allow for some modification of the, the, uh, the outcome or whatever you would say, what, how do they phrase it? You in like in GURPS and stuff, you, uh, you you modify your effective skill or something like that. It's kind of a counterintuitive way of phrasing it, but yeah, because if you have plus thirty on a skill, 
um, that's like a plus 30 extra ceiling to your ability to roll under. Right, so that you have to phrase it as a modifier to your skill rather than a target number going up or down. But, um, yeah, it, it can become a problem where people just sort of roll without even announcing what they're doing or giving somebody a chance to tell them what how the situation changes it. Um, if, I don't know if you want to... That's a perennial thing, though. Um, I mean, D&D 5 is not a role on the system, but I've experienced it plenty in that, where people will just roll, hey, I got a 23, what does that get me? 23 on what? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I guess that's just the problem in, in all of the systems. Uh, I, I feel like that, roll that's under... That's your table. That's up to the DM to work out. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like roll under mentally it just does something with people though where they they feel like I don't know, maybe it's just the experience that I've seen, but people were just so much more comfortable uh because they know exactly what the target they think they always know exactly what the target number will be because it's just their skill and they don't even think about the fact that, that can be modified by circumstances and GMs can got steamrolled by players sort of just bombarding them with roles and everybody just sort of doing their own thing. It's like, it's not a discussion each time. Like it would be theoretically with a, a traditional target number where you don't know what the target number will be, uh, until, well, until you're told. It's a very simple table rule to contend with that. If it is actually dragging the game to hold, it's just no skill checks unless actually asked. Yeah. I don't like running it that way because I, I actively reward weird and wonderful ideas that come out of left field. But that's, that's a DM management thing in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I don't see how there's any neat or elegant way you can build that into system without, um, coming across like you're trying to micromanage, um, player, um, interaction. Well, I'm curious, uh, if you two, uh, Dunce and, and Steve, if you have, you know, any questions for each other or us, if there's just something, you know, on your, on your, you know, f- current plate that you're dealing with that, you know, well, you I want feedback. Can I toss in just one comment? To yeah, us? yeah, absolutely. That discussion between grips and gurps really got me kind of confused at times. Like, <laughs> Those sound really similar. That's a legit point. Uh, what do you? Yeah, I hadn't even realized that until every now and then during that conversation, is perk up going, "Oh, what are they saying about?" <laughs> yeah, I'm, I might have. Yeah, sorry, I might have to rethink some things possibly. But I was you so happy with that acronym. It doesn't help that you share the first name of the guy who made Gertz as well. Gertz <laughs> by Steve. Yeah, no, because uh, Steve Jackson. That's right. Oh, yeah, I've sacrificed many hours on the altar of Steve Jackson. Bloody munchkin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I was actually going to, like, quickly throw a question, uh, Thade, about the, like, because it was mentioned a while ago that, about your magic system is very heavily science-based and very, like, it's it's very understood. It's a discussion I've had a couple of times in the past, the idea of that I much prefer magic when it does have that element of mystery to it. Like, even to the point where the original martial arts thing I mentioned ages ago is, is what grips came from. 
magic was a thing that existed, but players could not have it. It was entirely in the hands of dangerous NPCs. So, so how do you... Era, magic is kind of like science, but science gets a lot of mystery to it, too. And that's very much true for everyone in setting pretty much through most of the eras, is that while on a system level, uh, if it were quizzed on anything, we could give an explanation about it, what the people in setting understand of magic can be very mystical and very incomplete and sometimes very wrong. And if a player is like, playing a character, then we don't go into all of that detail. The only reason we always like can explain everything very everything very clearly and concisely is because we're speaking as designers. Like we would never present magic so completely if we were GMs. Well to even function with it I have to give you like a lecture series though. Yeah, but like again the lecture series is hardly complete. And for most of history, like people only know People know some effects of magic, but it, it's not until much, much later that they discover why it is. It's exactly like science, right? Like, it still goes through that stage of, like, alchemy, of, like, well, what if we put dark pee with lead together? Does that turn it into gold? Um, of people worshipping gods that don't exist because they think that causes tornadoes. What was your actual question, to? Well, I was just wondering, how, like, just based on what you added there, how are you going to present it to the players then? Like, assuming, uh, like, the final book in stores or PDF download or wherever you're going to do it, players have it in their hand when they skip to the magic chapter and read about that, how much of it are you going to be explaining to them? How much are you going to be keeping sort of, this is the esoteric weaves of the mists of magic, and how much is going to be, this is how magic works? You would have to break it down by era, which is sort of the thing about our setting, is we basically cover every single conceivable human era from prehistory cavemen, so like intergalactic high sci-fi, um, all human cultures too. So you, there would have to be a brief for each era. Like, this is what people know in era one. This is what people know in era two. I rely a lot on procedural generation for, like, culture, economy. I love me a good generator. Yeah, so, like, there's a lot of procedural generation involved. And, like, a lot of the stuff, like, I wouldn't know what it's going to be until I sit down and start cranking it out. Imagine 40 splat books, like those expansions you were talking about, each one with a different era, and about, like, 14 different uh, essays on <laughs> on the logic of the anthropo anthropology at the time. I'm just throwing out there as a suggestion. Well, we we probably wouldn't actually write any of the anthropology down. We would just tell people how to generate it. That way they could throw, like, a couple map tiles together, and from that it'll tell them the entire history of that particular region. I thought of adding a lot of the fluff down just to explain what the numbers are doing, because I think it really helps. Like, right, as an them. example, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, especially with your faction system, like, a lot of it really needs explanation, or the numbers make no sense at all what's happening, but like for geopolitical power structures we have a pretty solid and, you know, thorough system for that. I just, I don't think you'd know, it, it would just look like garbage number rolls that are kind of boring to actually do if you didn't understand what the numbers actually represented at every step. So. Well, that's because everything right now is done in shorthand. 
Can I just say, uh, for a second, Pullman, I thought you were going to say, imagine like 40 splat books, each just full of generators, a way to make things, and for a second, my heart skipped a beat. I was... <laughs> An ecstasy or terror? <laughs> yes. Yes is the only answer. <laughs> I think but, they've got you covered. But, seriously, uh, like... It, I'm a massive fan of good generator. In that Discord, I'm in. Someone mentioned the other day, "Oh, what if we made it like a procedural generator for a plague?" And for a second, I was like, "I want to do that." It has no place in my game, but I just now want. Uh, I am intrigued, sir. Yeah, I, I am deeply into procedural generators too. They're so fun. We've been we've been tinkering with ecology lately, so and plagues. Okay. At some point, I want to see if I can get a chance to sit you two down and just run you through my colony slash noble household generator. It's half procedural generator, half micro. Well, we're the right people to talk to about uh, noble households, at least. Um, <laughs> we have a very elaborate Guanxi politics system, but uh, and also we keep Australian hours here in America, so that should be probably convenient for you. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. I'm going to bother both of you immensely about this. Dunce, is there anything that you wanted to uh, to bounce off of the rest of us with, re- regarding your system? And you know, I mean, there's so many things to talk about. There's there's final final documentation. There's artwork. There's you know different methods of things. I mean, we've got some. I'm sure we all have opinions at least on these things. Yeah, but a lot of those um, concerns, especially like farm documentation, artwork, and um, back to what Steve was saying before about the business side and the monetization, these aren't really concerns um, that I have at present simply because I it goes against the spirit of the thing. I'll put it that way. Um, like my whole Duntac project, um, I specifically do not want to play around in that ball pit because, um, A, legal issues, B, um, you know, way I see it, this is the kind of project that should be free to begin with. So That makes sense. Uh, it, as a passion project, even though I'm sure that you have some standards for what you want it to end up becoming, I mean, I have talked to many people who plan to give away their game or, or whatever, and, you know, it's still... Still, usually there's a point of pride in wanting to have it all come together. I, I thought it was an interesting point to, to throw out there because I know Fate and Molly, like they said, they're working in shorthand right now and they have sort of this continuous iteration that would make it foolish for them to fully document everything at any given point because they're always revisiting topics and, and, uh, are very open to reconsidering you know, how their oh. s- systems work, and it would be a you ton of work. Foolish, but no, um, there is actually a dedicated audience out there who genuinely wants to read the dev notes. There are always a small subsection, but... Really? Um, huh. Yeah, something I've discovered with my own stuff, because um, if anyone's actually looked at it, you'll notice that I'll... I'll have like a sidebar with a rant of just me going, this is why I did this. This is what I was thinking about doing this, but it turned out to be a stupid idea and just mm. posting my thoughts. And 
I've noticed that um, some people actually get really irritated if I don't include them because they want to know why. They want to know why I made certain choices. They want to know the thought oh, process and the justifications. No, I um, really recommend you include that. Like, if that's what you mean by dev notes, absolutely. Like, if I have a question about which way a ruling is read, rather than, like, keeping up on a giant list of errata, I would rather know your thought process, and that would inform you way more. Yeah, and it's something that I got into the habit of doing simply because one of the games that I really idolized for this kind of thing is Savage Worlds. I think that rule was written very well because um, they include dev notes pretty much wherever appropriate. Yeah, and you know what? Actually, I, I read that, and it, I, I like that too, although I didn't register it as being a, a conscious choice on their part. That's, that's interesting to note. Yeah, because... Um, for instance, in the older editions of Deadlands, I had a skill called Guts, which is bravery, but as a skill set. Um, but they removed it in the base game, just with a sidebar justification explaining that they had too much overlap with certain other attributes and so on, but could be reintroduced if the DM really wants to drill in that it's an exceptional trait. And that's when it registered consciously for me, was reading that specific note. That fits in with and, your your what you said before about being very upfront and sort of transparent with with how you present everything and and just wanting to show your work essentially. So I think that's a that's a good point. Well, Burning Wheel has a similar thing where it. I'm just brought it up now. Uh, yeah, they have actually a section in the opening part just called "Voices in My Head," where he specifically points <laughs> out. You know, he's got little. In, uh, illustrations that he has where when that illustration is there, he's speaking in this voice and the voices are the instructor, which is sort of saying, you can think of it like this, the ranter, which is just, he's got something he wants to say and apparently the weeper. And I've no idea what that one's meant to be. And it sounds kind of horrible, but just that idea of deliberately putting in the notes from the developer of saying, this isn't actually part of the rules, but it could help you understand my mindset. It's a good idea. I remember reading Burning Wheel. I'm surprised you brought that up, but that's actually a great point because, yeah, that is a a very noticeable thing, especially because there's a little icon and he literally vocalizes his dev notes in the form of different characters that it's it's a bizarre way of writing it. The whole book is so fascinating in a way that's a... Uh, I was actually inspired by it just not because I wanted to imitate it, but just because he took so much license with how to write the rules out that I was like, if people, if he can get away with this, I can get away with, you know, changing it up a lot too. And, um, dev notes are something I personally, as a, as a game designer, you know, or a would be game designer, certainly am fascinated by. And I've always been wary to, not try to project that onto an average player, but I guess as long as it's just a sidebar, it it doesn't matter. They can just ignore it if they don't want to read the sidebar, so it doesn't matter that way. Well, I've got two things I want to say on the topic of dev notes and presentation thereof. First thing is that um, the kind of people who put their hands up consistently to be DM, so the kind of people who wind up forever DM, they're the kind of people who would really love and appreciate the dev notes. Um, like, you can always tell this kind of person, actually, because you give them 
a setting book like one of the Eclipse Phase or um, World of Darkness books, and the first thing they'll do is they'll flip to the back and read what the devs have to say about plot hooks and secrets in setting. Um, the second thing is that with what you were saying about getting away with things, I've found that you can market any concept to any audience as long as you get the trappings right. And what I mean by that is if, for instance, you can take the idea of a, say, Pixies, Fairies, like, you know, let's take Tinkerbell, right? You could market that to a Game of Thrones-style audience if you get your court intrigue right. So with, you know, getting away with certain um, concepts in your own uh, your own development, it's like as long as you... Um, as long as you set it up properly and in earnest, then there shouldn't be an issue with getting away with it. Yeah, the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned uh, that juxtaposition is Berserk as the the manga, um, where there's a you know a fairy character following this uh, horrific murder, uh, you know, grim story, and it it's a bizarre juxtaposition that obviously has worked very well for that story for however long it's been running. So, um, mm. yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if you guys are fans of that story or are familiar with it, but, uh, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. Anyway, it's a, one of, one of the big inspirations for myself, although I would never go that dark with my, my own setting, but, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point that you can, you can present things that, seem like they would be bad ideas as long as I think the word earnest is an interesting one to bring up because maybe that is what it hinges on is that if something feels like it's done insincerely or, or with hesitation, um, it, it comes off way worse than if it's just sort of embraced and, and treated respectfully within your setting or I suppose even something like a documentation like dev notes, uh, doing it just sort of right straightforward and being unapologetic, but also just sort of, there is a balance there between it. Cause I, I thought in the past, I, I bring this up because I've thought about this so many times is I love to write about design theory and I know people have a limited appetite for that. I pretty much don't, but, most people, I think, do, and I've been like, maybe I should just write a whole booklet supplement on just my design philosophy for this game, and somebody will read the whole thing, and it'll really help them run the game in theory, and I always have to shoot down my own impulse towards that, but... Um, Why? Uh, I guess... If at least one person reads it, mission accomplished. Yeah, I suppose, and... The the benefit for me is that the more I write about what I want to accomplish, the more I understand what I want to accomplish. There's basically the process of trying to articulate it in writing is what clears it up for me, much like having these conversations, having conversations with other designers and and bouncing the ideas off and seeing seeing where it lands on other people is is the only way I can really advance my thought on these things. So um 
I don't know. As an exercise, at least it's interesting. And I started writing one, uh, but it, it felt like I was like, had my head up my own ass and I was like, you know, uh, being really pretentious with trying to lay it out that way. But I did create a website that is brand new. It doesn't have any real content yet, but I plan on whatever dev notes and discussion and design goals and things that I want to update. I could, I guess I can put it there and. Even if it's not in the final book, it could be on the website. And what do you guys think about that in general? I mean, the idea of having a website where you can have resources that don't belong in the actual book. I mean, I think think ideally the future of tabletop games should be presented in a wiki format anyway. Someday. Rather than even on a page turner, I, I feel like the information is laid out and makes more sense. I mean, you had a pre—I actually had that observation on a person previously on your podcast, I believe. Right. Um, if we're, know, I thought it was right. You know, it was just oh, that's clearly correct. I agree to an extent for organizing the database of everything you would want to know, but personally, my solution that I've come to through a months of sort of agonizingly coming, trying to come at it from different angles is I do like what I'm currently doing with multiple, instead of having one big book, I have multiple booklets that deal with essentially that if you took all the chapters of an RPG book and broke them out into separate booklets, that is essentially what I'm doing so that multiple people at the table can be browsing different chapters at the same time um, or you can read it in the order that makes the most sense to you and what you need to know rather than having that sort of vague temptation that you should read it from cover to cover or sort of the, the clumsiness of an, an old-fashioned bounded encyclopedia set that you're always flipping back and forth to try to reference things. And I certainly say that booklets are an improvement over a tone. So. In a wiki... I don't want to have to go to a screen to understand uh, a tabletop game per se. So that's also someone was born in the 20th century. <laughs> well, Apocalypse World had a fantastic compromise for that, in that because um, it's a class-based system, but the way it presents its classes is you can print it out as this little leaflet thing that you just hand to your player. And that's everything they need to know about their um, character selection options. Um, New World of Darkness as well has all of the character creation rules printed on the um, character sheet itself. I'm so glad to hear that. That, and hopefully, is I don't know if that's a successful model for them, but the idea of players bothering to print out things is sort of the where I see all the compromise being between true pen and paper and awesome digital and and online resources is as long as when you print it off, if you could have a wiki that prints well, then I think we're in business because uh, having, having the resources organized, you can quickly find things in a digital format is awesome, especially if you can just type a search term or whatever. But, um, 
having it at the table and on hand and physical and even being able to write in the margins and have notes and things like that to me is also equally valuable because what a particular player wants to remember might not be highlighted properly in a book or a a website. And so for that particular player, it might be they have to underline or circle a certain section and be like, remember this so that, you know, it's just a, there is a logic to wanting to use a, a disposable. That's kind of the thing about the booklet. I want people to be able to print one of these booklets once they own a, a copy of the game and, uh, mark it up, you know, do whatever you want to do with it, pass it around and, and everything. And then, you know, it's not high quality, um, you know, high resolution gloss paper. So you don't have to worry about it being, uh, being precious with it. Although I know that's a, a major selling point for RPGs is all the visual splendor of it, but the utility of booklets that can be used and reprinted or whatever is where I've ended up. So I'm not saying that's the best solution, but it's where I've ended up. And I'd be, I'd be dying to see what Thade and Molly end up doing if they, when they finally put everything they have into, uh, documentation, especially with justifications and whether you'd want to dress it up as being a sort of a traditional player facing diegetic explanations or straight up dev talk to system people who are running the system. I don't know, but, um, those are, those are things I can't wait to see. And, and if any of you guys have updates or you create a site or you have some place where you're showing your documentation, I'd, I'd like to know that. And I could put that in the description of, of the podcast when we put it up. Oh, I don't have anything yet. Just got some Google Docs that mostly are filled with me just my like mad scrambling. Hmm. And Dunce, you you said you were just working on on. Uh, I mean, you only started this year, so I guess it's it's not that unreasonable that you would be sort of middle of the the frenzy of. Just putting all the concepts together and fleshing it out, and not it being in the in the final documentation phase. Um, more to the point, being a hobby project, I don't care so much about how pretty it ends up at the end, um, because the final documentation plan is essentially it's in a format that people can read and understand without thinking I'm a complete idiot. So, in its present format, it's. Um, you know the home brewery tool? I don't. Anyway, it's a markup language. Yeah, it's a markup language um, uh, website. Oh um, no! You know what? I think I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes everything look like a a D and D book, right? Like even. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. Credit to the guy who made it. It is an amazing tool and saves me a lot of work. Um, so. I think I actually should shoot some money to his Patreon over it. But, um, yeah, I just posted on that, and um, that's kind of how my stuff's been filtering around because, you know, people can just grab the link and go, here, read this. Mm. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I, I, I'm not up to date on the, all the tools people have out there. Like I don't, I have technically used Roll20, but, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly alien to me and I probably should be more versed in that kind of stuff, but, um, yeah, that's a great resource. I have seen that and it works well. So that's just where I'm working at. I'm, like I said, I'm not terribly preoccupied with prettying things up. Um, maybe if I move on to my own project later down the road, sure. But for now, I'm just focused on getting under the hood and fixing the issues I have in the game. Well, I feel pretty satisfied with, uh, with the discussion. I definitely got a sense of what you guys are working on. Is If there's anything you guys want to, you know, uh, shill of your systems of, you know, feel free. I mean, this is, this is the opportunity and the, the, the point is to get you guys to promote what you're doing. And if there's any aspect of your system you want to, you know, discuss, uh, I'd be happy to, but. Uh, at the moment, I'm not advanced enough to really be shilling too much. Uh, the only thing I've really got to shill is I do have a free little casual game on the Google Play Store if people want to have a look. Really? Uh, so just have, yeah, have a look on the Google Play Store for Push Bounce. I put it up there years ago, and I'm pretty sure it's only been downloaded like 30 times. Uh, recently had to do an update just because Google decided it didn't want to allow stuff that was that old without some updates. So I had to relearn how to program in Unity. It has been probably a year since I've even looked at Unity. I mean, I, I, I have suddenly have a whole new interest. I'm going to, I probably shouldn't, but I, I've attempted to bother you about ideas I have for software, uh, sort of tools that <laughs> I always want. Cause I also have generators. And if you love generators and what they and Molly are, are looking at, generators is like the number one thing I want apps for. So I just click a button or put in some parameters and, and it outputs all these results. The design of the system and what it generates, I can handle, but I can't turn it into a program that does it for me. So it's all dice and tables and shit. So, um, there was actually something I saw for that a little while ago. There was a website that like allowed you to just create generators really easily. I'll see if I can find it. Hmm. And once again, that's something I wouldn't be familiar with, but it's probably out there somewhere. Uh, Dunce, what about you? You, you know, we haven't talked a lot about your particulars of what you've changed in, in your system, but we have an overview of it. Is there anything you wanted to sort of focus on or highlight? I've never been particularly good at showing myself, to be honest. Um, I guess, I guess the particulars are that I'm more concerned with um, getting a sense of, you know, big damn heroes type gameplay back into D&D, which is what um, a lot of people were drawn to from the 3.5 and um, 4E days, and whereas 5E seemed to be an experiment in trying to ease that off a bit. You said big so, damn heroes? Yeah. What's that meme? I'm not familiar with that one. I assume it's pretty um, straightforward that you just have a power fantasy, but... Yeah, um... You ever watch Firefly? I've seen a Phrase little bit. Phrase comes from that show. Oh, okay. Phrase comes from that show. It's like, you know, yeah, heroes of the day. Um... 
because, and this is actually part of what drove me to making the project in the first place, was realizing that there was an internal uh, discrepancy between the tone they were trying to engender and what the mechanics were saying. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Because the tone was still very much what you'd expect from, say, a 3.5 game, whereas um, the mechanics seem to want to harken back to, um, you know, AD&D. It didn't work out. Yeah, and that's where you get a lot of people having to uh, role-play as if they were amazing heroes, but actually having very limited abilities. And it, there's a weird disconnect that I noticed when I was playing the between the concept of your character and the reality, and and it didn't do anything for me either. Is another reason why I became so turned off by fifth edition, which is the only edition I've played. But yeah, no, that that's actually a big problem. I know introducing people to it is um, the discrepancy is glaring because um, you know the backgrounds are quite humble, but the classes are larger than life. Hmm. And um, I guess what I'm trying to do is bring things up, and this is why I've got the no nerfs rule, bring things up mechanically to be that larger-than-life concept so that you actually feel as powerful as you're supposed to. See, that's such a great point. That, And I think what that would do immediately as a consequence is downplay my other concern, which is the GM feeling like he has to constantly be kissing your ass as players and, and setting up a story where you can't fail because I felt like my character was weak, but this, the concept of the character was strong. And in order to bridge that gap, I was always getting softballed challenges that was like, Ooh, yay, you did it. You defeated this thing. And it's, don't you feel so heroic? And it's like, I guess, but, I didn't really do anything. It's just, it was just an easy challenge and it became a condescending feeling. Whereas if you were more literally empowered earlier on and you had better options, the GM doesn't have to hold back as much and can give you more interesting challenges or, or, or situations to deal with earlier on. And then you just naturally live up to the, the concept of your character by using what you have available. Well, one of the tables who was playing my stuff, um, they keep referring to my changes as quality of life. So that's how they see it, which, again, that was an interesting feedback because I didn't think of it that way. I thought it was much of a greater undertaking than that. But There's so many implications probably that it feels like quality yeah. of life improvements. Yeah, no, that's the thing. The phrase quality of life, that... That's steeped in implication. So I guess what I'm trying to say is if people are using that phrase, then that means that I'm hitting the right mark. Because mm -hmm. they're, they're not seeing it as things are being changed. They're seeing it as things are being put to their rightful place. Right. It's, it's things that maybe they didn't even consciously realize before, and they can't even phrase it exactly what it is that changed that made it feel better, but it just is an accumulating sense of this is different than before and I like it, and and it just comes out as the phrase quality of life. I can totally see that. That's very interesting. That's a good lesson for 
how to as a metric even just for designers in general to people listening to this to if people are thinking of your changes you're making as being quality of life improvements that's probably a big giveaway that that they don't understand exactly what it is that change like as designers we want to be conscious of what we're hoping changes and that and all the implications but players won't be able to see it that way most of the time and will probably just give you some feedback like that and that would be a that would be great to receive yeah i found that um what people say is less than important than how they talk about it with regards to feedback Mm-hmm. Yeah, I gotta, I, I wanna do some playtesting soon. I have a playtest theoretically lined up any day, and it's basically up to me how much documentation I wanna have, uh, ready for, by that point, and, and I've been trying to document as much as I can so that I, I don't have to remember as much and make it up on the spot as much, but, um, that would be something I know I would love to hear, uh, you know, and I, and I agree that paying attention to the tone and the, the frequency with which people say something is also, even if they are saying it politely or they're being like, oh yeah, well, that, that's okay. And they're sort of like skittish about it, but it comes up like six times. Nobody's bringing up as being a major problem, but if it gets repeated enough, it's probably a huge problem and they're just trying not to say it that way and, um, yeah, you definitely have to read between the lines. I've, I've heard that from a lot of designers, some of whom have experience and, and have sold and have their own little marketplace set up and everything. It's like feedback is never as straightforward as it seems on the surface, but it's always important if you know how to interpret it. Steve, do you have a, I forget if you mentioned this or not, but do you have playtest um, feedback or anything like that yet? Uh, not for a bunch of it. There's still more to test. Uh, one of the things I have tested was the uh, sector slash homeworld slash barony generator. That was fun. That went well. Um, I've done some like mock uh, mock-ups of events and combat and that sort of thing, but I still need to sit down. I'll probably just you know, get my D&D group and bribe them with alcohol and just go, hey guys, do you mind if I just run a couple of sessions of this? See what their thoughts are. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a sound idea. Especially if you already are known for, you know, being able to run things decently, you have, have a certain level of trust that you know what you're doing. I will just mention something that was referred to before that, um, like when you're talking about when you get feedback, it's as much about the like the ways delivered as what they're actually saying. There's a principle in physical design where the ultimate goal of physical design is people don't even have to think about using it. It just flows. I mean, there's a whole bunch of design principles that just have become in, like intrinsic in modern society that we don't even think about. Like even to the point where if you have to push a door, the handle's horizontal. If you pull the door to open it, the handle's vertical. Like little things like that that you don't even think about. They're just intrinsically part of the way things are designed. Mm, that's true. And so ideally, like the best case scenario for an RPG, just taking that principle on, is 
if you're making changes to an existing system, the changes just flow. People don't even need to think about the fact that they're using them. Yeah, which makes the idea of dev notes a little bit curious as as you would people enjoy dev notes and they enjoy seeing the logic i think but uh at the same time they shouldn't have to know the logic well i think it's like if i'm driving a car i don't want to have to think too much about driving it but if i'm a gearhead then i really want to know how the engine sure yeah and with the dev notes thing it's um something else i've noticed as well is it's not there for the average user. It's there for the people who um, think they see a problem and want to understand more about it. So, for instance, um, with the Savage Worlds example, um, some of their dev notes are actually pre-anticipating um, issues that expected GM would see in the game. Right, yes. So it's kind of like, this is our logic... Um, if you feel this needs to be changed, understand that this is where we're coming from. And so a prospective um, GM can look at that and go, oh, if that's where you're coming from, but I disagree, then I'm going to change this. Yeah, that's exactly why I was so tempted to to emphasize that in mind, and I wanted to get into it, is, is that... Rather than changing my system to conform to what people expect, I, which, you know, is theoretically that, um, what you're talking about, that people don't even notice and they don't think about it. I find that that's probably going to be almost impossible in my system because a lot of things are, are very counterintuitive to what a traditional role player would have, uh, and would expect. And so old habits you have from other role playing games probably need to be broken if you're going to play mine. And I I assume people will think that's a mistake and that it's badly designed as a result because why not cater to what is tried and true and all that kind of stuff. And DevNotes is exactly where I feel like I need to justify decisions I've made. And, of course, first I need to play test it to confirm that I'm I'm actually making good changes and that it's good to break those habits. But... Um, Theoretically, I will end up with dev notes all over the place because I'm going to anticipate a lot of a lot of friction with people coming in and not uh, not just being able to sort of pick it up and assume what happens next. And I think uh, I assume Thade and Molly's would kind of be the same way. I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of counterintuitive logic for a traditional role player that they would come across. And maybe that's true of, of yours too, Steve is, is it sounds like you have a, a rather unique model that you're, you're building off of how much you're concerned about wanting to explain yourself, um, versus, just sort of letting the design speak for itself when people see it. I don't know. I get really concerned about that because I want to be understood. I want people to understand why I did something, but um, you can also assume people are smart enough to figure it out or they'll just, it'll either click or it won't. I mean, for the most part, for everything that goes on the market, you have to consider the weakest link, right? 
when we design our games, one of the things we have to consider is if I was just being an absolute asshole and as evil as I can be, how can I ruin everything for everybody? Um, and so to that extent, I feel like it's much better to lay out in detail what you thought because it's not that hard for people to skim over it and not read it if they don't want to, than to not have that information there at all. It has, like, something I've considered occasionally just having at the end of every chapter, just this little section is just like, you know, dev diary or developer's corner or something like that, uh-huh. just explaining the thought process, something like that. You know, once you get to that point, as a reader, you can go, this isn't something I'm interested in, turn the page, oh, I'm on the next. Well, and I can uh, say, oh, go ahead. I, I'm also not sure if what we're doing is, um, I guess I haven't, seen a lot of examples of the same thing in tabletop design. Uh, I feel like this is just a matter of us coming from a different background, that we're treating this very much with a level of like jurisprudence and consideration that would be owed like um, to a sort of a legal document, right? Where someone screwing with it could actually result in real consequences, and that's really all we're doing. Um, all of that principles, elegance, lack of arbitration, it's all there, like, to prevent actual corruption in an actual government, theoretically. Uh, they called rules lawyers for a reason. <laughs> rules lawyers, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you, you, you could have a, a Supreme Court of Thade and Molly, and, and if somebody appeals it, they can go up to them and, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, the, like story that well, Gary Gygax was in the phone book at the time when Dungeons Dragons first came out, and he would get phone calls from people just going, "Hey, we're not sure about this," and he'd just give them a ruling on. The- yeah, absolutely. Uh, ideally, we would be able to lay things out well enough as a constitution that groups can probably just tell what the intended purpose was, because the last thing I want to do is turn this into our arbitration instead of their arbitration, because arbitration is still fundamentally corrupt. But that's the discussion between um, rules as fun, rules as intended, and rules as written. Um, at what point does um, each rules as um, takes over? I mean, that's a, that is a discussion we've had several times in the history of this podcast is the, I, I tend to fall in the realm where ultimately all you can do as a designer is pressure, uh, the group to see it your way and to, and to agree. You can't obviously force anyone to actually obey the rules, even as written. Even if you explicitly say something, people can change the rule. And so the best case you can hope to do is to persuade people to see it your way. And that is that ties into the social contract at the table, obviously. And so that's what I really love doing as a designer is to consider the psychology of phrasing something as a suggestion versus a demand versus a structural component. It's one of the reasons why I love structure so much is that uh, it's really hard to escape structure. It's easy to bend a rule, but it's really hard 
to escape an entire structural format of a, of a mechanic. So, for example, you know, the, the long rest and the short rest idea is almost impossible to get away from. Almost nobody homebrews that from what I can tell because it is just a, um, it's a format that ties in a lot of mechanics, at least a couple of really important ones, and, you know, sort of the, the initiative system. Things like this are, like, really hard to get away from because of the implications of it. And so structure, to me, is is kind of what is the most solid in terms of laying down your vision for what the game should be like, getting a particular rule or, you know, value or property to work the way you want in a, in the way a monster behaves or the way a healing works or something like that is usually much easier to tweak. So I, I try to make the structure do as much work as possible. I think because of that. And the rules as intended is kind of the unspoken or in my case, I want to make it pretty explicit that this structure exists because the rules are intended to work this way. So therefore, the structure essentially demands this thing is handled before that thing. And, and you know, you will get around to all of the things you want to do, but first you have to lay this out. You know, for example, one of the, the kind of key gameplay facts about my system is that before you don't tell your characters never tell or your players don't tell you my character does this and you just tell people what it is they physically do in the world. You have to always first say what you want to accomplish and then you say what your priorities are in the pri in the process of wanting to accomplish that. And then there's a step where if it's required, you shift around your character's uh, focus, which is an actual mechanical, like, physical thing you would move. There's three different things you can have focus on, yourself, your surroundings, or the, the distance. And depending on what you're trying to accomplish, I mean, basically, there's, there's steps to how you role-play itself as a structure that makes it impossible for somebody to just say, I, I bash this guy over the head or I, I sneak up behind him and then you, you play that out, uh, in a compartmentalized way. And then he tells you the next step in his plan. And then he says, Oh, I snuck up behind him so I could steal his wallet. And it's like, well, no, in my system, you would have to say, I want to steal his wallet first. You'd have to say, my priority is doing it quickly or doing it quietly or whatever. And then the, the difficulty in the process and how exactly it plays out and what the challenges involved are kind of becomes contextualized by those upfront admissions. And so as a structure, I just think that eliminates a lot of um, hijinks that players get up to when they're trying to be sneaky or keep secrets from the, the GM and, 
What do you mean keep secrets from the GM? Have you not noticed that? I mean, I, there's a there's an example I saw online that was one of the most frustrating things I've ever seen. Um, I won't say which playthrough it is. It doesn't matter. A character had this plan that he had been saving up for an hour where he wanted to kill a certain character that should have, that had security guards around him and was protected and all sorts. And he slowly and steadily played out this whole scenario where he casually walked up behind this character who had, you know, security and, and was supposed to be a character that would be hard to kill. And then literally point by point described how he would pull out his gun can I do that? Yes or no? The GM says, of course, yes, you can pull out your gun. I raise it to the back of the character's head when he's not looking. Can I do that? Well, yes, you could do that. Okay, then I pull the trigger. I'm not exaggerating. This is how detailed he was being. Then I pull the trigger and, you know, I shoot him in the back of the head. And the GM, knowing, I suppose, from far off what he was trying to do, although he was wasting an immense amount of time trying to be, you know, compartmentalized with this whole plan, uh, then told him, well, roll on the chance to hit table <laughs> or whatever. And he basically missed and somehow it was a 40 K game. So he ended up shooting the character's leg and he was so pissed off that his plan didn't work because he spelled it out. Completely, he walked through the exact steps physically of what his character did, and it yeah, wasted. Guarantee success. It wasted like half an hour of in of real life time for all these players, because he wanted to have exactly his process respected instead of the game's rule, which is if you want to shoot somebody, you have to roll. So he could have just as well said, from you know, 30 minutes earlier from 50 feet away, I want to shoot this guy. And it would have turned out exactly the same way. But the, I don't even know if that's keeping secrets. Was just some kind of weapons grade autism. Yeah. Like to be completely blunt, I'm not terribly concerned with, um, building systems and rules to deal with, um, derpy, um, player driven cases yeah. like that, because that's literally what the DM's there for. And I agree. I mean, to some extent, you can't design for the lowest, or you could, but probably you don't want to design for the lowest common denominator because that is a very deeply depressing thing to do. I, I would only say that this person uh, has a long and rich ex- history of, you know, role playing um, online and for audiences and stuff, and is not considered to be a bad player. And this has worked in other systems and that, that he has, you know, played. And so his mentality was not some random derpy thing as much as it was a proven successful model that he had gotten away with so much that. I don't have a lot of experience with other tabletop systems, but I can't imagine any that would just be like, well, I guess if you like spend enough time talking about this topic, we can just not use the mechanics. Apparently it happens. Uh, he gets special advantages and perks and it, you know, the, and, and to some extent, that's the most extreme I've ever seen it. But on some, if you pay attention to that, if you look for that phenomenon, which I call compartmentalizing, 
Uh-huh. A, a player will <clears throat> withhold key details of what they're trying to accomplish in order to hopefully spring it as being this glorious plan they had, but which, That's but which so weird to me. Sorry. It is, it is weird to me as well, because I like to be very transparent with, with my character and yeah, I mean, you can have your in character moment of glory where you reveal your master plan, but I guess I don't understand this mentality in general where people around the table are working against each other, not, you know, with each other. It's it's a very real thing as far as I can tell. Yeah, and it's infuriating. Just throwing two quick things. Uh, one, the really frustrating part about that story is the fact that, the like, you said it was the 40K game, right? 40K RPG? Yeah, that's right, yep. Yeah, that has a cold shot action anyway, so he could have just used that to shoot the guy in the head if that's what he was oh really trying God. to do. And the other thing is... There are occasionally circumstances where, like, not necessarily keeping secrets, but having a plan that comes together can be good if, like, especially if the GM doesn't know it. Like, I know it, it's a bit cliche to bring up critical role as an example of anything, but there is one moment from that that was really clever that basically everyone involved just went, yeah, this is pretty, it was like very quick version of the story. Uh, the characters were, they'd made a deal with a fey creature. And as part of the deal, they ha- were asked to get a piece of a threshold crest, which is like a, it was a small fragment of a really powerful arcane item. And they agreed to it. And some of the players are just trying to ask questions about it. And one of them just went, no, 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 we got this and deliberately shut down the questions before. And everyone's like, what's, yeah, we trust him. So he's got something, but we don't know what it is. And then at the point where they're like, okay, so where's the piece of the threshold crest? He got the druid to open the door and just druidcraft a bit of wood out of the, like, the just at the bottom of the, where the door should be, also known as the threshold of the door, into a crest. Then he broke it and gave the fae a piece of a threshold crest. And it's like, okay, that's just kind of cheeky, but at the same time, that's the sort of thing you can almost respect. And more to the point, if I was running a game that had Fey in it because of how Fey contract tends to work in those settings, I'd actually allow that. Yeah, there's a very there's a very loose logic that actually becomes uh, something to enjoy there. I think in this case, um, I, I ever since that point and even before that, to some extent, I recognized the, a pattern that I wanted to structurally mitigate, and I think there's a lot of other benefits to the way I handle it as well. Which is again where I would want to have to put in dev notes, but, um, especially one of the, one of the big problems I notice is players impulsively, whoever acts first hijacks the scene, right? So in traditional role playing games, everybody sits around and kind of either talks at the table or just l- waits for somebody to make the first move in a situation that's been presented to them. And then somebody eventually says, well, I go and I do this, my character does this, and they just explain the action they want to take. Then the GM, whether it's, you know, if it, if it deserves a challenge or a role, then they, they obviously handle it that way. But everybody else is essentially frozen in time until that is resolved. Um, and then you can have weird situations where a character says, wait, I was going to do this. And then I've plenty of times seen a GM just say, nope, this character said it first. Therefore, we're resolving that entire chain of action, even if it took 20 seconds to finish. For some reason, your character just sits on their ass while that happens. 
And then there's no real team planning or discussion, essentially. And you have, you're lucky if your if your players at the table are into teamwork, uh, because the system basically incentivizes first spe- for whoever speaks first, acts first, and and it makes the worst players uh, the most powerful because they just blurt out whatever they want to do. And um, is that literally not what initiative is for? Yeah, that sounds to me like the initiative system should kick in hard. Well, in a situation that's totally non-combat related, it's it's extremely rare for people to literally put in... I mean, if you have someone... The more likely outcome is that a player doesn't say, hey, wait, I don't want you to do that. I want to do that first. More realistically, because of the social delicacy of, of you know, the table and not wanting to upset people's feelings, everybody else just sort of grins and bears it this this character did something nobody wanted to do and so we all just let it happen and maybe there's a groan or whatever but that i actually dislike even more is just the awkwardness of knowing that the even if you have good intentions if you're the first person to say well uh, it seems pretty clear to me we just need to cross the bridge and so i cross the bridge well Turns out everybody else saw this as being a trap, and it's a terrible idea. But they let you do it, or the the GM just sort of allows it. And the rules are so loose, and it's so freeform that it... Yeah. I I see what you mean. We were having this discussion, like, um, just earlier today, right? That I feel like if your character is even the slightest bit competent then I would say, like, well, you probably know enough to listen, to see if your companions make an objection before you commit to that course of action. But you see... There's a certain level of disconnect in terms of how things happen at a table and how things would actually happen for you in that scenario. Like, um, in a previous campaign, um, we do a lot of, like, theater of the mind, just description stuff. And the combat had dragged on long enough that I forgot there was a fire in the room. <laughs> uh, I said my character moved like 10 feet to the left, um, and that was where the fire was. And that was one of those things where I would be very mad if the GM wasn't like, uh, actually, you can probably see that and not do that. I agree. Um, but, I mean, wouldn't you agree that that's a clumsy implementation structurally to to force people to sort of you know handle it on a case by case basis and and you know hope that people are are forthright enough that they can call each other out if it's a bad idea and you know the awkwardness that results from it all i would rather have the system just sort of structure it so that there's essentially a phase of team planning before anybody does anything as a natural course of the action. And then... I, mean, I like that, too. I always enjoy planning. And by making it explicit as a part of a structure, I just feel like there's yeah, totally almost... Absolutely. It's almost impossible to end up with a situation where somebody blurts out something they regret or everyone sort of resents an impulsive action because it's it's baked into the, the flow. Um, mm-hmm. At the risk of sounding somewhat rude here, um, that 
honestly just sounds like um, an issue of just the people at the table. Well, that's... Um, you're describing a problem that I've rarely ever experienced. And I... I mean... I, I, I trust that most people... I don't even know if I can say most, because I actually, you know what? I'm going to take that back. I think there's a good chance that most people do have a couple of these moments per session or at least per campaign where something happened that, you know, it it may be the exception, but I don't see any reason to not account for it because when it does go wrong, it can go so wrong. And what I always worry about is that GM who is especially new and doesn't have the confidence to really get a hold of it because everything I talk about structure is usually what a GM handles is, is, you know, essentially creating the structure and managing the flow of the experience beyond, you know, generating the story and controlling the NPCs and all of that. There's just an order of operations sort of level of what the GM is trying to do and manage. And I feel like the GM has so much to worry about already that I don't want to have them burdened with this sort of socially awkward situation of telling this person, no, you can't do that right now, or first, shouldn't you talk to your teammates and sort of referee these interactions that the system could very easily sort of just handle on a on a case-by-case basis? Honestly, I think a better way of um, mediating that would be... Cause I actually think it's required reading um, prospective DMs to actually look at the uh, first couple chapters of the 4E uh, DMG because 4E DMG actually goes over, you know, what you're describing, the social aspects and um, the interaction side because playing referee and being able to sit up in their face, no, that's a bad idea, don't do that. Or what you're doing is depriving... You know, your other players of spotlight, can you please back the second of them actually have their turns? That's part and parcel with stepping up the plate. So, to be honest, I think the best way of mediating for that is to simply, um, have not a necessarily mechanical overview, but like an explanation of these are the expectations, these are the skills you need to sharp, this is what being a DM actually means. And I think that part's not communicated well enough because most people think DM rolls dice, has power and laughs as, you know, players get themselves killed over doing stupid things. It's not that at all. You're the umpire of a game of collaborative storytelling. Yes. um, And the reason why things like initiative end up existing, the reason why, you know, long rest and short rest exists, and the reason why all of these structural things that that you don't think about exist in something like Dungeons and Dragons is specifically because those conversations keep happening and they're not interesting. And the GM is instead of having an, a discussion about exactly how many hours you sleep and what effect that has on your character and should what should happen they simplified into a structural event. It nobody argues about it. It's one of the most well accepted f- things in the game. Um, and I feel like 
people take for granted that that is a structural solution to what would otherwise be a complex conversation that would have to happen every time. And I think if you just apply that lesson across more instances, you get a smoother experience and then you just sort of have to be careful to not overdo it um, or else every decision becomes so, so greased and so, so fluid and so handled by structure that you don't have the opportunity to sort of mix things up or have a dynamic. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you that on the short, long rest and initiative there as being structural solutions to these sorts of problems. Um, but there's only so much you can account for. Um, like Steve said before, with the example of the guy walking behind the guy and, you know, oh, I shoot him in the back of the head. It's like, that's what the cold shot system in the game is supposed to account for, mm-hmm. being able to pull assassination shots. It's up to the DM to mediate when and where those sorts of mechanics need to apply. That's a great point. And, and so having maybe a tool is sort of a step down from a structure, which is, which is more forceful. A tool is sort of a, like a called shot. It's a, it's a thing that lets you easily facilitate a conversation when it needs to happen, but it doesn't force the conversation to happen. Um, and, and that's great too. And I, I definitely have a lot of those and I, I try not to shove a structure into everything, but, um, because of the amount of times I've seen it in my own firsthand experience role playing and elsewhere as I listen to other people uh, do role playing online quite a bit, uh, the particular thing about people blurting out things and then being given all the agency ahead of their team was it bothered me enough. And I wanted to emphasize in my game a very strong teamwork ethic um, that it's just official that, you know, Nobody acts until everybody has said what their goal is in the situation. And and I look forward to seeing how that plays out. I don't think it will be a hassle because it's not like it's a long process. Theoretically, it would be something that you only need to update whenever whenever things change. So if you say that your goal is to climb on top of the building so you could scout the area, um, you only need to say that once. And as circumstances change, you don't need to keep saying it over and over and in a way, it actually simplifies things even more than saying, I climbed this flight of stairs and I, and now I go through this door and now I go here, I go there and whatever. People can sort of break it down more. It might, it might be more efficient in some ways, but obviously in a freeform system, things can go as fast or slow as you want. And I think that will be more or less true in my own. So. I don't know. I'll get feedback. I'll, I'll play test it. I think it's worth trying at least. And it might be one of those cases where I just need to put dev notes in and, and, uh, explain myself because I'm not trying to say every other system should do that. I just think it's worth trying. And in my whole game is just a big bunch of that. It's just, what if we try this? What if we, what if we change this thing that we all assume it has to work this way? Um, I want to see what happens. So. It's more of exploring that design space. Sorry to, to rant about my own system there for a long time, but uh, the the question of um, compartmentalizing, I was kind of surprised that it, it didn't seem like you guys were familiar with that as being a common problem 
Uh, maybe I've just been paying attention to the wrong <laughs> examples, but... Well, I don't really pay much attention to um, podcasts and um, uh, Hashicot streamed format role-playing games, so I don't know if it appears over there. But I know that in my own games, it's a case of oftentimes if a player has, like, you know, this grandmaster plan and, you know, they when they unveil it, it completely throws a spanner in the works of what I was doing, oftentimes it's like, oh, you just skipped an entire challenge. Here's some experience because, holy hell, I should have thought. Yeah, so. but, but I feel like if I wasn't on a podcast where I was hoping to, like, appear professional, then if someone tried that with me, I would just be like, so what are you trying to do? And talk to them, you know, outside of the game context. And hopefully that would get bad in the butt. Instead see, of wasting more of my time. See, I like it when my players um, come up with, like, oh, wait, you skipped the entire encounter because oh, you had yeah. a piece of gear I on your character too. sheet that I didn't... Absolutely, I do too, if they actually come up with a plan. But if their entire plan consists of pulling out their gun and shooting at somebody and they just broke it down into 11 separate steps, that's still not a plan. Oh, no, that that's a cold shot, and oh, look, he missed. Uh, but, yeah, no, I love plans, you know, out of the left field. But thing, I like it when players outsmart me, and I like outsmarting my GM. It's fun. It's the point of the game, I think. Um, tabletop, that is. It's something that you definitively couldn't really do in a video game. Steve, where do you fall on that? Because uh, my my feeling is that the players should lay their cards on their ta- on the table. The GM does not have to uh, in the same way at all. They can, like I said, they can have secrets. And if the player says, I'm going to be very sneaky and I'm going to use this thing that you didn't account for when you laid out the initial facts of the situation, you basically checkmated the, the GM's situation. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, admitting it right up front should not change the fact because the GM should be respectful enough that they don't suddenly say, oh, shit, I didn't think of that. Now I'm going to change the facts of the situation to make that impossible. Like, it it doesn't change the fact. It just makes it a faster experience, in my opinion, if you just yeah. say it outright as soon I as you think of it. I think it's about a... It's a, the two-way street of respect, basically. Like, you've got to, one, respect the GM's time as a player of the game, because even though the GM has, like, the mystical crown on that says, I play the entire universe, they're still a player. They're still there to have fun. And, like, one player wanting to get one over on the GM shouldn't be at the GM's expense. It should be a, hey, I've done something clever, well done, be, everyone should have fun, rather than, I'm trying to deliberately trick the GM just for an advantage. Like it should be or, about or pressure them in some case. Like I feel like this the case the, the example I brought up and and other times when I've seen it to a lesser extent, it's almost like a a pressure game. It's like how much are you going to let me do before you invoke a challenge? And if I present it the right way, you will seem like an asshole for making it a challenge because at what point? Does walking up to somebody and pulling a trigger become a challenge? It should be very easy. And he's, it's a, it's clearly there's a system for it, but it's, it's kind of more of a, 
a, a social power play than it is a system power play. System-wise, it doesn't make any sense, but socially, you're putting him in this... The example there is just not respecting the GM. Like, it's saying, I want to try and do something cool, what I think is cool, but I don't think you'll let me. And if that's the case, so why won't they let me? Maybe I should look at that, rather than, I'm still going to... There's also a point that um, there are several steps in that entire exchange where the DM lever that says, by the way, this is going to come with risk. For instance, when you were describing that, it wasn't up until he pulled the gun that the DM said anything. If this was a game I was running, I'd be like, all right, so he's got bodyguards. They're going to roll perception. How about you roll stealth to see if you can get by undetected? Right, but because he didn't even announce that he intended to kill this guy, he wasn't... Nobody knew that he wanted to just have a sneak attack. There was This was a character in a situation that they could have talked to and could have resolved it some other way. His, He's walking up behind a guy with body bodyguards. I, I, I totally take kindly to that. <laughs> I totally agree, um, and I, I agree with both of you. I think it's a respect thing, uh, and the, and the GM could have handled it a different way. I almost feel in a in a bizarre way, like the GM wanted to allow him to do all of this bullshit and 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 indulge it specifically so that he could um, tell him how invalid it all was at the end. And have him learn the lesson that it doesn't matter how you dress it up. It is still going to be resolved mechanically in a consistent way. And I guess the lesson was learned, but he sure had a hell of a, a sour face for a long time after that as he thought he was being very clever. And and I, like I said, I've seen it to a lesser extent where people get away with this, and I, I'm very conscious of it when I see it and hear it in person and when I'm watching other people play um so yes it is something that absolutely like almost every problem can be handled just at a table level by being respectful and open and communicating properly it's just that like molly said you kind of want to design for the asshole and the worst case scenario and that could mean a, a gm who is not respectful of players it could mean players that aren't respectful of the gm in the situation and at least in my hypothesis of how things work, the structure can lubricate that that interchange so that there's less friction, there's less opportunity for people to um, accidentally or deliberately undermine each other and have sort of little plots and and uh, unfair twists they're trying to pull on each other and the the hostility that kind of can build up over time as a GM might get frustrated with a certain angle the players are taking and the players are getting frustrated that the GM is doing this or that consistently. And I think it's a, a slow devolving process until the point where it gets to some player tries to just literally cheat or pull one over on the GM in some way. And, and it just becomes this ugly process that I guess me as being a sensitive very observant person. I see that coming from a mile away, and it makes me very frustrated. But um, other people, I think, you know, sort of turn a blind eye to it because they're just trying to enjoy the the experience, and they they don't try to design around it. Therefore, the way I sort of see it is that um, I I actually don't even agree with the thesis to begin with. 
Let me just think. Because the way I see it, it's like, as a designer, you've also got to put some trust in your players to actually be able to um, use their own judgment in their interactions with the game. So trying to mechanically incentivize, you know, behaviors like respect at the tabletop, it's kind of like, why am I trying to micromanage the dynamics of their table when I could just get back to making the game? Well, I would compare it directly to what you said about getting feedback that it's just quality of life is improved when in reality you were fixing some detail that players might not even notice, but it has these implications. The same thing can happen there where players shouldn't think of it the way that I'm thinking of it as being a matter of you're not, I don't trust you to be respectful to each other. Ideally, somebody who doesn't know anything about my design logic or why I'm doing these things would just feel that the game runs more smoothly and has less times where there's some sort of friction between them and the GM, and it would just be considered a quality of life improvement. Uh, ideally, I don't think people are consciously, you know, thinking, well, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I might not respect my GM, but this system sure helps or something like it wouldn't be something people would recognize. Um, it might be a subconscious thing. Well, to put bluntly, if you don't respect your GM, why are you playing their game? Uh, I don't think people consciously think of it that way. I think it's, it's it's very subconscious that, like I said, it's a slow process of a breakdown in in trust. And like most relationships, you know, yeah. things are unsaid and are slowly building under the surface for for a long time before things actually officially break down or anyone officially says anything. And, and that's just a psychological principle of that, that I try to take into account and headed off at the past, maybe with a, uh, a design. And I mean, that's, I believe that is what is happening all over the place in RPGs. It's just, we don't see it that way. Like I said, the initiative system or something would be, all right, we're tired of arguing about who gets to act first. We don't want to have to have this discussion every time. So roll dice, have a modifier. There you go. Um, discussion eliminated. And if, if you don't think of it as being a respect issue and a, you know, an argument that is waiting to happen, you just see it as, well, that's just how the system handles it. And, and we're glad for it because it's simple. It's fast and whatever. Um, and. That's the point of... We're going to have to check out now, so... Right. It was great so. great to have you. I really enjoyed uh, having you guys on for this. But Herp. yeah, um, post this real quick, but other than that, I'm going to call it a night. We're probably going to wrap it up pretty soon, and uh, uh, we've been going for over four hours now, but... Uh, oh, wow. Let, let's, finish this, uh, let's finish this point, at least. Well, I don't see issues of respect at the tabletop as my job. Like, I can incentivize things that could make that easier, sure, and things like the short long rest system or, like, paradigms of an adventuring day, which are rules I plan to work because Red Markets has a very good paradigm I'd like to emulate. Um, but, yeah, those sorts of things, sure, but when it comes to the actual respect on the tabletop, that's between, you know, you and your table as individuals, that's... I'm not your shrink, <laughs> I'll put it that way. I'd be um, demanding a 
you know, some money for that one. But I'm not entirely sure there's anything you can do mechanically that could foster it if it doesn't exist. I had a discussion about this sort of topic a couple of days ago, and my general perspective on if it's a problem that could be possibly an out-of-table thing, like I just, you know, a player doesn't trust the GM, I don't think the solution is found in the game. I think just on the basis that that it's at most a Band-Aid solution for the problem still exists. You know, maybe if you just put a Band-Aid on it, it'll be fine and people can still have fun, but it's that's a volatile situation that's going to go bad at some point. I, I hear both of you, but I don't know if you're hearing me because I, I, like I said, I don't think this is something people are consciously aware of. So you can't, they would not say they don't respect the GM. They would not say that they don't trust the GM. If you ask them, they would totally say they, they do. And the fact that it's unconscious and it's something that slowly happens over time and it's a subtle thing, I think I need to be aware of that as a, GM that I'm creating a circumstance that will potentially lead to friction. That friction will then have some sort of consequence over the long term. Um, and ultimately it will manifest in a way that hinges on what the player psychology is. I mean, if the player is passive aggressive, it'll come out as snide remarks and jokes that sort of hurt somebody's feelings maybe or something like that. If they're more blunt and, and an A-type personality, they might just suddenly do some sort of power move that undermines the GM's, you know, authority or whatever. I mean, these things are never as simple as I officially don't trust the GM, but uh, this is sort of a, a classic uh, point of debate for me is the the whole rule zero concept um, being the sort of final say, the 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 hammer that the GM gets to lay down that they have the final say. And, you know, it, it's sort of a, a chilling effect that happens where the GM has the final authority. And therefore there's no point in even trying to challenge any point he makes. That's a disrespectful thing that is sort of just handled brute force in with rule zero in, in my observation and on the other hand, something like fate currency is the other extreme where players just have the ability to veto things that the the GM wants or to force through something. And these are solutions that don't get much thought. They're just considered to be good design choices. But when I look at it, I see a lot of subtle things happening that are just handled with sort of a really blunt solution and... Maybe I'm overthinking it, but um, in in any way that I can try to head things off the pass and stop there from being that friction, and I don't know how it's going to manifest, but I've just seen different examples over time. Uh, I feel like I have an obligation to at least try to smooth things out between the players and the GM and anticipate where there's going to be trouble spots. thought that actually occurs to me is that um, I noticed that Steve and I have um, a similar perspective and I noticed that you, Thade, and Molly had a similar perspective over there and it's just like, well, 
Oh, and this, this is stratified clearly between the two Aussies and the um, three Americans. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, maybe this is just, you know, preconceptions brought from, you know, where we're from. Because at least from my stance, um, what I see is, well, if everyone's in it for the purpose of the game and everyone's working toward making the game better, then I don't see why this problem would emerge in the first place. It's like if you're not here to enjoy yourself and you're not here to be part of the game, why are you here? Mm-hmm. Well, I can definitely tell you it's not a it's not a, an American uh, thing because there's a lot of people that I've talked to on this podcast and I listen to other game design podcasts and stuff and and there's definitely a lot of uh, you know American designers that would totally agree with you guys and I I I might even be just in the minority altogether in terms of um, being fearful of that aspect rearing its head. Uh, Thade and Molly have you know. I, I definitely think they're they've taken it to an even further extreme with wanting to not even have a GM essentially in, in this major system they have, and you know I've I've had the conversation directly with people that have said, you know, all of these problems just need to be solved on a table level. The designer does not need to concern themselves with the relationships at the table. You're not fostering, you know, healthy dynamics between people that they bring it themselves and and so that's a consistent pattern no matter who i talk to europeans um americans and stuff like that there's there is just a very strong stance designers take a lot of times where the the designer does not need to concern themselves at all with that just make a fun game that that will work if people have the right attitude and leave it at that don't don't try to uh, compensate for, you know, somebody's inner demons or whatever, uh, ends up coming up at the table. And maybe it's the psychologist in me, but I like doing that. I don't even consider it to be a, a, a problem. It's fun for me to try to smooth things out and, and push things in a healthy direction and all this kind of stuff. So, um, I, I think Fade and Molly are, are a very exceptional, uh, pair. Um, so if you listen to the other uh, podcast episodes, I'm sure you'll find more people agreeing with, with your side of things. Um, you're, you're in good company. That's for sure. But we can always, uh, revisit this topic at some point in the future, along with anything else you guys have, uh, you know, updates on your game. If you hit a new milestone or, um, there's some sort of challenge that comes up or anything like that. Uh, it, was, it was amazing talking to you guys. It went very well. Um, hopefully you enjoyed it too. And we somehow went over four hours here, so it couldn't have been too bad. Sorry, I talked too much. Uh, no, you guys both actually took turns talking exactly the right amount, I think. We've had some roundtables in the past where people are talking over each other and somebody's dominating, but absolutely I think this was a great conversation and well-balanced Thank you both for coming on, and it's great to get to know you guys. And I'll absolutely thanks for having us. I absolutely look forward yeah, no, to. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, uh, it turned out really well. Getting to know both you guys at the same time, having uh, a lot to discuss. I'm, I'm actually really glad Thade and Molly were here to chime in and, and throw in concerns and questions uh, throughout the whole thing. And uh, we might have to do this again sometime. So thanks, and and. Uh, you know, anything else you want to 
to put out and links to things or anything like that, just let me know and I'll put it in the description and, um, yeah, I'll see you back on Discord probably. Sounds like a plan and I've already shielded myself. I don't like shielding myself when I can help it, so. People will find, uh, Dunn's hack if they want to find it. That's, that's going to be a term that's a very good search term. You're not going to get it mixed up with anything else. So I'm sure people will, will find it just fine. And, uh, hopefully you continue to get good support there. I think that's sounds like it's all moving in a really positive direction. So thank you guys. Thank you for listening, uh, listeners. And we will see you again next time on the podcast. And, and thanks for being here. <laughs>